Hi, it's Dave. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by James Dama again, and we're going to dive into Tesla's latest FSD um, beta version of Levin release notes that were leaked recently. Um, yeah, we've got an excited um, kind of episode and discussion here. Before we go into that, I wanted to kind of just get uh, James's thoughts on just some recent current events and things going on. Um, have you been following um, the Twitter noise and saga, the drama? Um, uh, it's kind of hard to, if you're on Twitter, it's hard to avoid. I, yeah. I try to avoid it, but you know, you get exposure to it regardless. It's it's also, it's been interesting to see Elon pimping uh, Twitter so heavily, right? It seems to be like his whole thing right now. So that's kind of amusing. But. Yeah. I mean, is it, um, <laughs> so my wife keeps on telling me, Dave, it's like, is Elon paying attention to Tesla at all? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. um, I tell her not to worry. I think Elon understands um, the bigger picture, how significant Tesla is. Uh -huh. And um, part of it is Tesla's doing well. He has people in charge, you know, projects uh -huh. are moving forward. So he's able to take, you know, a few weeks here and there, um, mm -hmm. a break. I mean, what are your thoughts kind of on this, um, kind of this division of interest or attention right now that it seems like Elon yeah, is I, going through? I, I suspect his, uh, his Twitter behavior is probably not really great insight into his like time and attention allocation and that sort of stuff. It, I think uh, there's a there's this narrative that that um, that Elon's kind of Twitter he tweets impulsively and I think he sort of reinforces that himself. But I my sense is it's more strategic. You know, it may not be you know grand strategic. There's a big plan and he thinks stuff out ahead of time. But I think he generally knows what he wants to direct people's attention to and he has a good appreciation for the fact that him just like respond, doing almost anything on Twitter is a way for him to focus the attention of a lot of people. Uh, and, uh, and he can do it in a super minimalist way that's relatively vague and, uh, and just essentially, you know, direct attention or try to bend the narrative that's out there in a way that, you know, benefits what his thing is. I think, um, you know, Twitter's a big challenge and, uh, I get the impression he wants to, uh, make big changes, make them really quickly and get on with his life or whatever that, you know, that it's going to get going and that he wants to use, you know, his Twitter presence as a megaphone to enhance that, that, that thing right now. I, I mean, he's obviously spending time on it and to the extent that he has less time then he has less time for pretty much everything. But Tesla is in a really good place right now. Like, you know, if he'd tried to do a Twitter acquisition in 2018, you know, I mean, there have been times in the past when he definitely didn't have attention to, to, to spend on it. But I feel like, you know, Tesla's it's in great hands. Um, I mean, they, they do have, he, he characterizes his effort as mainly engineering and product development concept, that kind of stuff. And I'm sure there's a significant amount of that still ongoing, but probably not as much as there has in the past. I mean, the Cybertruck is the, you know, it, it's not done, done, but you know, cause the production line hasn't been done. There's always going to be engineering challenges. Um, you know, there's this robo taxi that's got to be developed and, but you know, the autopilot team seems like they're just turning the crank and making good progress and auto. I'm super happy with the progress of autopilot recently. Like I don't yeah. see any crises that really require a lot of attention right now. So if you take some time off and to go do some other passion project, then this seems like a good time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, the whole kind of, um, drama on at least Tesla Twitter community is kind of the impact on Tesla stock that mm -hmm. Elon's involvement on Twitter 
might mm-hmm. have. It's still kind of undecided completely what the impact is. But what, what are your thoughts? They're unhappy with the fantastic buying opportunity he's creating for them. <laughs> like, what are you? My my yeah. thoughts. I, like I have this uh, pinned a tweet from uh, Gary Blackwell someplace, and this is something he said randomly. A couple, I'm not. I don't want to beat up Gary here. Right? I think he's a he's a fine addition to the community and whatnot. But he tweeted out this thing was like boy, it's been a tough week for long-term Tesla investors. <laughs> and I like highlighted that and saved it because like, uh-huh. you know, it, to me, that's like a non sequitur, right? It's like, if you're a long-term investor, there are no hard weeks, there are no hard months, there are no hard quarters, right? Because what you care about is what happens 10 years from now, not or five years from now or something, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, it, uh, this actually my brother-in-law he didn't used to be into uh stock investing so much and until uh, they got into tesla and we talk about it from time to time and and um recently he said he told me that like the price was down and he was trying to figure out how to take advantage of it right and i was so happy to hear him thinking in those terms right because you know in the long term if you're confident in the company the long-term trajectory is assured and in the short run, it's just like, it goes up, it goes down. How do I take advantage of this? Like it, to the extent that you care at all, you, you ask about that kind of stuff, because you know, if it's down, you know, if it's down for a year or three or something like that, what do I care? All, all what I care about is, is uh, what it, what it's, what it is 10 years from now. So I, yeah. I, when I was early in stock investing, I used to stress about that kind of stuff. And now that I've been doing it for a couple of decades, like, you know, what happens one quarter is like nothing. It doesn't matter at all. And yeah. so I just don't get excited about it. And I, I feel uh, like it's unfortunate to me that people get caught up in it because I think it creates a lot of stress. And most of these people, they are long term holders, right? And they, you know, that they're in the company because they believe in the long term mission and that kind of stuff. And worrying about what happens in the short run, I think just causes a lot of stress. So there's, there's always this, this fear in the back of our mind that maybe we're wrong yeah, about yeah, the long-term yeah. thing. And maybe Wall Street's telling us we're wrong and we're just not getting it because we're in our a bubble, you know, we're in our little media bubble or we're, you know, we've gotten drawn into something that we don't really understand. And, you know, that's, I, I'm super confident that that's not what's going on. Yeah. You know, business cycles happen, recessions happen, stocks, they all go down they all go back up to like, I've been watching this a long time. There's a huge, there's a historical record going back like so far that, you know, these things recover. And if you, if you're in a position where you're going to, you know, there's a decent chance you're going to have to liquidate your holdings in the next three months or six months. Well, yeah, be worried, <laughs> right? Cause things might not get better in three or six months, but if, you know, if your time horizon is 10 years, like this is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking, um, lately there's a spectrum of shareholders but also even with a single shareholder there's a spectrum of that um how much long-term um kind of focus that one can have versus for example maybe a, a certain percent of your holdings in tesla you'd want to kind of be able to liquidate within, you know, a certain few years or something, or, you know, year or two years, but maybe a different, a, another section or portion you want to hold for longer. And so it's quite complicated because every person has a different type of allocation of goals. You know, some people, I don't need this money for another 10 or 20 years or whatever. Some people are like, you know, a lot is writing on it. So yeah, it's a very, um, 
Yeah, interesting time. What do you think about the stock buyback kind of um, um, movement that's going on where some people are wanting the board to approve, let's say, a 5 or $10 billion buyback? What, do you think that helps? Is that just a distraction? What are your thoughts? Uh, like if Tesla really doesn't need the money to push the mission forward, or if, I mean, there is this sort of transactional sort of view that you can have of the thing that like, well, if the stock is really cheap, you know, buy it now. And later on, you know, uh, sell some more if you need cash in the future. I mean, that's why you go into public markets, because if you need to raise funds, you can, you can sell some stock. And from, from a sort of playing your own stock standpoint, you know, which over, I mean, companies do this, right? They, they, they buy their, and, and this is, I think wall street tends to view stock buybacks as a signal because they, they see companies as fundamentally doing this. Like they buy their stock when they internally based on their internal understanding of the situation, believe it is cheaper than, than they will be able to sell more for in the future. Like that's what makes it a good deal in the short run. But there's also this just like, we have more money than we know what to do with or that we can apply effectively mm -hmm. to our core business. And so we're going to return it to shareholders. And at least in the tax era that we're in right now, stock buybacks are a better way to do that generally, broadly speaking, than dividends are. And so like to the extent that the impetus is either of those two things, like, you know, go ahead and buy it because it's cheap and we can sell more later if we need it. Or it's like, yeah, we literally just are not going to be able to use this money. We might as well give it to shareholders. Both of the, in both of those cases, I think it's it's a good idea. You know, buying the stock. I, there's also this rationale about setting a floor on the stock price. Like, I think there is a point at which it makes sense for the board to do things that set a floor on the stock price. You know, if your stock is too volatile, then your long-term ability to use stock to fund your business could be negative, could be negatively impacted. And while like I tend to view Tesla as sort of entering this regime over the next like decade or two, where they're just not going to need to fund their, their uh, operations from anything other than their cash flow, that I don't see that being a really big thing, which is why I'm sort of assuming it's one of the one of the first two, but so yeah, sure. Put a floor on the stock price. It'll make people feel happy, but yeah. uh, it's a transitory fix, right? Yeah. Like companies yeah. can't buy enough of their stock to set a permanent floor. So, you know, people who like it as a, you know, one quarter pump to the stock price, like, you know, good. But like I said earlier, like I think things that you do that affect the stock price for a quarter, like they mostly really don't matter and shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, also I think there's a chance that I, I, I do agree. Like if, you know, the board, the company can can authorize a certain number or a billions of, of dollars to buy. They could kind of, if it dips uh, below a certain point, they could just kind of keep on buying at a certain low point. But mm -hmm. there's also a risk of what if they run out or what if, you know, you know, the economy just tanks further, the market tanks, and you've kind of spent a lot of that already mm -hmm. and it just, your stock is lower. And you just did if this kind of, if the economy, your business, and the stock market all simultaneously go in the toilet, and you've spent it all, yeah, you're in you're in a tough spot. Yeah, well, it's just it's just it could also reek of desperation from from some some people outside if mm -hmm. it doesn't work, meaning you know things don't turn out um, like people are hopeful for. So that's where I'm kind of like, yeah, I think it's wishy washy. I I, I I could see it potentially work. I could see some risk. But in the mm -hmm. long term, like, I, I don't know, it just doesn't really matter in terms of, you know, the company's long term trajectory. 
Um, yeah. yeah, so mixed opinion, mixed feelings. The about market dynamics around Tesla stock are very weird. They're really, I, it's, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've been uh, significantly invested in some odd stories over the years and have seen some weird stuff, but Tesla really takes mm -hmm. the cake. Yeah, like I could totally see you just pouring unfathomable amounts of money into the stock for a really long time and the price not moving because, mm. you know, because, you know, the amount of cash they have on hand is small compared to the capitalization. Yeah. And if if the investment community writ large is unconvinced, if their sentiment, their sentiment may, I mean, and it seems to be the sentiment seems to be unconnected from the business, you know, yeah. right now. Because the business is doing great, you know. There's no way, like, if it, no, in no rational sort of investing climate, should we be going through this kind of stuff? But uh, investing is often very irrational, and yeah. so these are just things that you go through in the long run. What convinces people is a history of good profits, right? And you know, if you really believe, as I do, that that's uh, you know very likely to be what Tesla has in store for them, then eventually the market comes around, right? Yeah, definitely agree. Um, so um, Tesla released, I guess, I guess um, Omar from Whole Mars blog got mm -hmm. his hands on beta, beta um, version 11 release notes for FSD. Um, before we go into that, um, the last release uh, version 10.69.3.1, what are your thoughts kind of on that version? Have you had a chance to drive it around much? Yeah, I got it last night. I took it out this morning, first thing, but I didn't have much time, but I wanted to spend an hour on it. So I did um, an hour of local routes that I know pretty well because I've driven them on FSD a bunch of times. And it feels like a very, you know, nice improvement. This is a bit of a hot take. Like I usually like to spend, you know, have 10 or 20 hours on something before I form a good opinion because you can't find the outliers in one hour of stuff. But um, I tend to judge... Um, progress on how well it's getting better at the things I think are most fundamental. Mm. Um, and, and, and this is what driving. I don't do this from a numeric objective kind of way. Like I don't go out and take a bunch of numbers and try to look at trend lines over time. I think you can do that. And some people do. And if you have enough data, you can, you can do that. But I feel like, uh, you know, if you've driven it a lot, your the seat of the pants thing gives you gives you a sense. And then looking at how it because there's kind of like the dynamics and continuous uh, sort of perception of like what it how is what it's doing, what is what it's doing telling me about how quickly and how confidently it perceives the situation it's in. And then the other aspect is how quickly is it seeing the right solution to the what it should do next, right? So this is like this planning and latency thing. And, uh, and I feel like you, you can get a, a, a fairly good sense of how that is going. Like, this is the fundamental thing. It doesn't talk too much about outliers and whatnot. This is just sort of the, you know, what is the core capability of being able to navigate on streets? And what is the core capability of being able to plan your way through things that are, you know, maybe not, maybe not simple. And both of those seem significantly improved to me on, like, I would say uh, for me, based on what I've seen so far, that 10.3, uh, 10.69.3.1 is a bigger step up uh, relative to the immediately preceding uh, significant version than, than it, like in the last year, it feels like the biggest kind of mm -hmm. single step up on the fundamentals. Um, 
I didn't see any bugs at all. I drove for an hour. I had, I only had one disengagement was I was at a, I was at, I got to an intersection where the traffic light was broken and it was stuck red. Right. And I had to disengage because the car will not drive through a red light. Right. That doesn't really feel like a disengagement to me. So like, I feel like I got an hour of, of, you know, running errands all over town with no disengagements today, which would be, uh, like that might be the first time I've ever had that good a run for a solid hour in mixed traffic, a number of difficult, unprotected left turns, a lot of maneuvering in dense sort of, you know, sort of small town, medium sized town traffic and a lot of residential areas with like wonky uh, stuff. And, you know, it felt pretty good. I feel yeah. good about it. Like, I feel like if uh, I've, you know, Holmars, he also shared what seemed like it was an, uh, a text interaction with somebody who was driving 11.1 who said that that, you know, that driver thought that 11.1 was the biggest step up they'd seen. So presumably they got to drive 10.69 to 3 to 1. So if 11 is going to be a significant step up from this, we've got some nice stuff coming this year. That's yeah. my general feeling on it. Yeah, interesting. Um, So uh, Matt Smith, Emmett Pepper's partner, he tweeted mm -hmm. out, that he was trying FSD beta on snow and then mm -hmm. it just kind of, you know, just, it didn't do well, <laughs> all these mm -hmm. alerts and disengagement or whatever. Yeah. And um, he, it's an interesting thought. What, do you, what are your thoughts on how can Tesla get enough, just not, I don't know, data, but improve their performance with conditions like snow? I'm not actually worried about like unusual weather right now. I, I don't think it, dessert i mean you know people who have to drive in snow a lot and want to use it on a daily basis they will of course disagree <laughs> with this observation i just i don't think it's very high on the list of things that tesla really needs to focus on in the short run uh with fsd i also consider it something that like once they've got the you know once they've got the crank turning on all of the core capabilities that they have that that dealing with you know, snow or deep water or weird situations where you're on ice, you know, dealing with important but unusual cases, unusual in that they're a minority of, of time that the fleet overall spends driving. Those aren't actually going to be that hard to solve, like when they get focused attention, kind of like a human being driving on snow, right? The, the, you know, if you haven't done it, the first time you do it is rough. And, uh, and it, you have to, you need a little bit of practice with it, but almost anybody can learn to drive on snow. If they can drive a car, you know, you just, you have to practice it. There, there aren't like qualitative characteristics that are completely different from normal driving. You still have traction. You still have to deal with momentum. You still have to look at timing. It's just that all the boundaries on your decisions change. Mm -hmm. Um, one other, uh, kind of note or current event was, I guess there's a leak that, um, Tesla's ordered a bunch of hardware for chips from TSMC and mm -hmm. supposedly the order is for the, the chips are four to five nanometers versus, mm -hmm. um, what they thought might be seven or so, um, mm -hmm. that people are speculated. Is there a significant, is there a big difference in terms of performance or what we can expect? For hardware for if Tesla actually by waiting, let's say a year or two, they actually just skipped kind of the seven nanometer and went direct, went directly to a four to five nanometer mm -hmm. chip. Um, yeah. Uh, so there are benefits to going to four or five TSMC four or five over, I think we were, was, were we hearing it was TSMC seven or Samsung? Yeah, that's what Samsung seven before. Yeah. 
So Samsung is the foundry for the current IEC. So uh, Dojo, we're being told, is done on a similar node at TSMC. And I think that came up on AI Day too. So I was a little, and you know, there's, I think there's, you know, there's been a bit of confusion about uh, whether, uh, you know, a particular leak for a Tesla chip was about the Dojo, Dojo chip or the FSD chip. Um, so, you know, there's a possibility that, that what the, cause I can't read Chinese and I didn't see a translatable version of the original thing. So I, you know, so I'm, I'm relying on other people who are kind of, uh, sort of vaguely talking about what they read in the thing, but it could be that they're talking about the dojo chip and they're not talking about it, but to address the question of like, is there a benefit? The, the biggest benefit from Tesla's, so you get a, a, a quite meaningful power savings going to four five over seven. So that's good because it means Tesla can put more compute in the same package inside the same power envelope. So that's one thing. The other thing that you get is you can get more transistors in a thing. Now, typically, you know, Tesla's running at like two gigahertz right now, clock rate. Um, they, it, we're, we, we probably aren't looking at a situation where like the clock rate would go up. The advantages would be being able to put more transistors on and stay under a power budget, which is definitely beneficial. So yeah, they could get real benefits from, it's also cheaper. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing is like the, the same level of capability done at four or five nanometer will cost you less today than doing a comparable thing at seven nanometer. And, and it can be quite a significant difference in cost too. So you know, if they're planning to put a lot of silicon, if it, like if hardware four is going to be silicon heavy, like they're going to put more silicon into it than they did with hardware three, then the silicon will drive a big chunk of the cost. And, you know, getting good economics is also important. Got it. All right. Um, I want to dive into version 11 release notes. So um, we'll go ahead. There's about maybe, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about nine or so. Um, uh, points, bullet points here. Let's go to the first one. It says, um, enabled FSD beta on highway. This unifies the vision and planning stack on and off highway and replaces the legacy highway stack, which is over four years old. The legacy highway stack still relies on several single camera and single frame networks and was set up to handle simple lane specific maneuvers. FSD beta's multi-camera video networks and next gen planner that allows for more complex agent interactions with less reliance on lanes make way for adding more intelligent behavior, smoother control and better decision making. All right, so what's your kind of, you know, overall take on yeah, this so first point? 10,000 foot level, the single stack is about bringing everything together and not having separate AP and FSD stacks in there. Um, I think there were multiple FSD stacks before. There might only be one FSD stack now. Um, I was uh, actually the most interesting thing I, I, about the note where they were talking about the single camera stuff was the last version, like I, I haven't seen an FSD, you know, network maps for quite a while. I used to look at those things from time to time. And the last time I was looking at it, they still had single camera stuff in FSD. So that implies there's no single camera stuff in FSD, which is, uh, good. Um, it. Um, it, when they when they have single camera, single frame stuff, then that means you've got portions of your neural network which are being trained on qualitatively different data than the bulk of your of your systems are, and so that adds complexity. Uh, it can be re- restrictive in terms of uh, you know benefits that you can get. Like um, the more cross pollination you get between different functions inside the thing, the more the better performance that you get overall. Like you get better performance out of all the features collectively for the same amount of hardware, the same compute, the same training, the same amount of data, if those things are put together. So 
hearing that they've that they've gone more towards unifying, you know, the input and that they've been able to get everything onto the eight camera frame, eight camera, building a 3D model and driving everything from that 3D model, like all their actionable stuff, instead of trying to do in frame stuff like that's great news. It means that they've 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 got a high level of maturity and confidence in the 3D portion of the model that they're getting a lot more consolidation of the features and the learning. You get better interaction between the features that come off the different head. Like everything is better when they do that. And and I I hadn't even though Tesla's been showing us for like a year or two diagrams of FSD that didn't include the single frame stuff, they never did show us the single frame stuff, right? So I was always like, well, maybe maybe they're still using it for the windshield wipers or the headlights or something. But it had seemed like there were in-frame feature, you know, things that they were using, I think, because they were legacy. And the fact, you know, it sounds like they've gotten all that stuff out. That's great news. Like, it sounds like they're you know, they've man managed to take a significant step away from legacy stuff that was probably holding them back and, you know, move on to a foundation where like everything they do builds, you know, and supports everything else that mm -hmm. goes in there. So that's great. So this top note is basically telling us, uh, you know, okay, so we're going to have the FSD stack running on highways. And I think all the, all the other notes after this, if I'm not mistaken, we're all, we're all talking about improvements to features that are mainly relevant to highway driving. So uh, we're hearing, we're putting it on the highway and here's a bunch of changes that we made that especially benefit highway driving. So we're going to see that going down the list. Um, so would you say like with Tesla, um, with highway FS, highway autopilot, um, they worked on that in the beginning and then maybe we would say roughly maybe three years ago or so they would, they switched mm -hmm. over to focus more on FSD beta for streets and they built that stack and now they're going back to basically replace the the highway autopilot with what they've worked on over the past three years is that kind of the rough assessment there yeah it's i wouldn't say it it's not the case that they didn't keep developing the ap stack because we saw the ap stack continue to improve and people who are on vehicles that don't have hardware three and hardware three can't benefit from most of the things they've recently it is hardware two and 2.5 they don't have the capacity to run the networks uh, to benefit from a lot of the stuff that's happened on fsd in the last year or two right but they're still pushing stuff pushing improvements back to those platforms so uh so my interpretation has been that they've been running it, to some extent parallel development stacks that cross pollinate each other like they'll discover a bug or they'll discover a benefit or a, something that they can do on FSD. And then they can either port the data or port the technique back over to AP and continue to get benefits there. And they're still building and providing benefits there. So they've, they've been working on AP. Okay. Um, they've, there have been comments made that about particular features that were refined in FSD that were somehow backported to the AP stack. And that, that has always confused me a little because my impression is that the classic AP stack. In a lot of ways, it's different enough from FSD that only pretty general stuff is going to, like you can't, like my general sense would be that, that uh, and especially if FSD does, isn't doing single camera stuff now, right? It's hard to take something directly off of one and move it to the other. But a, a concept or a data set, you know, like they could discover something about their data distribution in some corner case and then apply what they knew by essentially reproducing the stuff that they did on FSD in AP to make that better. 
So, but this general line, it, it brings up kind of an interesting question about like what, how, so the, it, it seems like the FSD cars, they're not going to have the regular AP stack, or maybe they'll have it in there as a fallback for people who want to turn off FSD for whatever reason, or they want to have, maybe if you want to have a profile that doesn't use FSD on your car still, maybe the a stack has to be in there, but to a first approximation, they're just not going to have that stack in, you know, that it's not going to need to be in the car in a usable form. So what about cars that are still on AP? Because one of the things that will happen is like FSD is going to be a significant improvement to highway driving. Like once they've got it, like, you know, my experience with using FSD at 65 miles an hour on road, because there are some roads that just, they're not designated highways and you can use FSD on them even at highway speeds. And my experience with FSD in those situations is that it's been really, really good. And I suspect that, you know, not moving, not having not uh, not moving over to it already is some function of like corner cases that are common on highways that FSD wasn't good at, combined with a focus of like really solving things that are specific to city driving, like you know intersections, stop lines, stop lights, and that kind of stuff being the main focus. Um, so like I think FSD is likely to significantly raise the bar. So what happens to the AP people? And what happens to the AP people on 2.5? Because even if you wanted to like put a, you know, software limited version of FSD just for the highway on those AP cards, you can't because they don't have the hardware to do it. Would Tesla go back and upgrade those people? Would they get left behind? Maybe they do. Because so far Tesla hasn't really abandoned people, right? Even, you know, pretty old cars going all the way back to, um, that, you know, hardware one still gets updates, right? So it'll be interesting to see how that hap what happens going forward. Hmm, interesting. Um, what do you think the, the transition looks like on from Tesla's kind of FSD perspective? So, you know, you've got this old kind of um, highway stack here that does AP, and then mm -hmm. you've got this new um, FSD, you know, city street stack. And to um, basically almost depre deprecate this highway stack and to let your mm -hmm. FSD beta overtake it. Like, how do you go through that process? Are you doing shadow mode a ton? Are you doing a lot of simulation? Are you running like, you know, hundreds of, of Arbor 3, you know, boxes to, to sample stuff? Like what, what's the, the transition you think, you know, how would you imagine that to look like? Um, yeah, I actually don't imagine, I don't see them as having a lot of, you know, mature capabilities on AP that they want to port over to FSD. And so, like some of the things you suggested a minute ago kind of implied that that would be the course. I actually see it more like you, you build FSD, it works inside a particular envelope, and then you expand that envelope holistically internal to it without drawing from other projects. And one of the reasons you don't draw from other projects, I mean, you might draw concepts from other projects, but you don't draw code, you don't draw neural nets or like, uh, you know, you're not, you're not drawing, say, a planning decision tree code, whatever, from the AP stack over, because most of that stuff, is sort of tuned for the stack that they had and it's not going to pour it over really directly instead like you build fsd you expand it at some point it's a functional superset of what your ap stack was doing and then you deprecate it because you just don't need it anymore because the fsd stack now can do all that kind of stuff i would imagine there will be transition stuff like there there are likely to be some corner case things that ap was really good at that the first version of fsd on highways like it won't have that sorted out very quickly. But the fundamentals, like essentially the, you know, I think, 
I think I said in a video a long time ago that like, if you had perfect perception, you know, the planning wouldn't be that hard that, that, that part is not the most complicated part of the driving problem. And as evidence, you know, we, we write driving, uh, we can write robot drivers that play in video games and they drive just fine. They don't have problems maneuvering around in video games. Um, in video games, the car has perfect perception because the environment is literally telling the car exactly what's around it. And so, uh, you know, I that to me that's evidence that that uh, that being able to drive well is mostly a perception problem. Like if you understand your environment really, really well, then then most of the rest of the problem is significantly more straightforward. Like you know, it's 95 percent, ninety eight percent of the whole problem is getting really good perception. And, uh, you know, that's because that's core and, and it's really fundamental to all the other things being really good. And because that is so much better on FSD than it is in AP, that there's just not going to be much to bring from AP over into, into FSD. Sure. But in terms of testing out, you know, mm -hmm. it on highway and various mm -hmm. edge cases, I'm guessing, I'm supposing Tesla is going to have some type of process where they release it cautiously, right? Um, before they yeah. deprecate, you know, across the whole fleet, it's, right? Um, okay, you 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 can run sections of it on cars that are already out there and compare it to, like you can put on uh, drivers who have hardware three in their cars, but didn't buy FSD, you can run it in shadow mode on, on, on all those cars, right? Because yeah. they're not using hardware three to drive the car basically ever. And uh, and you could you could test on those cars. We learned recently um, there was an interesting presentation that Sawyer Merritt shared uh, from um, a conference where two of uh, Tesla's AP infrastructure guys went and talked. And they talked about their uh, on F they 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 have five data centers, each with about a thousand FSD car computers, and they have this whole infrastructure that they've built where they basically have computers that feed you know, simulated drives or recorded drives recorded from the fleet into these FSD com car computers. This is like the same hardware that runs on the car. And, and these cars are driving these, you know, these hardware three units are running the code that runs in the cars and they're driving in these simulated environments and providing control output and it's adapting and whatnot, which is super clever. They have, uh, they got 5,000 of these driving 24 hours a day and they apparently are doing like 10 million tests a week. Like that's the equivalent of like a fleet of a hundred thousand cars or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that gets you a lot of testing. And apparently they can drive both in simulated systems where they do a closed loop thing where um, they, the computer can change the simulation according to what the car is doing well or not to try to like zero in on things that the car, you know, the current build isn't doing very well. And they can also run open loop where they take all these examples that were driven in the, hum in the real world by human beings and they can dump them on. So that's an awful lot of data. That's an awful lot of testing that you can do without even having to push it out to cars. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there, I'm sure there'll be a stage rollout and they'll, and they'll get to it. And I'm sure that there's some significant number of cars that have been running portions of the V11 stack so that they can, so that they can evaluate that stuff out in the real world. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, yeah, it also makes sense. Like you give it to the, you know, the FSD beta testers, mm -hmm. you wait until like, you know, it's, it's more proven, mm -hmm. um, before you, um, basically deprecate your AP 
stack on the non-FSD beta users, you know what I'm saying? Meaning you'll wait for the FSD beta users to prove it out um, before if everyone they move gets that non-FSD users over to that stack. It may be that the non-FSD buyers, mm. they get, oh, they get, they true. stay on the legacy stack, right? Huh, that's possible. Interesting. That was the thing that I was, that I was yeah. pondering in the, my previous digression is like, what do they do about all the people? Because like to some extent you could say, well, it would be really cool to just uh, deprecate everything that's not critical and then just offer defeatured FSD to other, to, you know, to the people who didn't buy FSD, but who only have autopilot or only have the NOA on highways or whatever mm -hmm. other version. But, it, you know, this also, it, you know, what Tesla does probably ties into their long-term strategy. It may be that they think two years from now, we're not going to sell any cars that don't have FSD. Right. So we'll just maintain that legacy stuff because essentially it'll all go away anyway, at some point. Um, like, I don't know what their plan is to, to going forward, uh, or it could be that they might look at this thing, like their, their resources for on FSD are so large right now. They might look at it and say, you know, carrying that legacy stuff, it's not that much effort. We'll just keep carrying it. Right. I mean, we'll continue to push security updates and incremental stuff and bug fixes. Mm -hmm. And as we learn things that are relevant, like there will be a group of people that work on that kind of stuff, but we're not going to, you know, it's not enough uh, of a cost for us to bother with, you know, the customer dissatisfaction or the cost of, because another thing they could do is they could just update, up, upgrade all the cars in the fleet. If you look at the number of cars that still have hardware two on them, hardware, some version of hardware two that could be upgraded, like that's a pretty small chunk of the whole fleet right now. I mean, you at some point it might make sense for Tesla to say, "Hey, you know, we're just going to upgrade all those cars and we'll give them defeatured FSD, and then that lets us down." So it'll be interesting to see what they decide to yeah. do because I could imagine, depending on what you think is important, you know, any of these decisions might turn out to be the right one to do. Yeah, makes sense. All right, so the second um, release point or note, it says improved occupancy networks recall for close by object obstacles and precision in severe weather conditions with 4x increase in transformer spatial resolution, 20% uh, increase in image featureizer capacity, improved side uh, camera calibration and 260,000 more video training clips, real world and simulation. Yeah, so it's interesting to me that they toss the uh, the um, occupancy network increase in resolution and the weather thing. The phrasing kind of implies that occupancy network increase in resolution is somehow uh, related to the desire to improve, uh, you know, performance. And I I wonder if that's true. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, they also they tell us it's a four x increase in occupancy network resolution, but they don't tell us if it's you know linear or volumetric resolution. And there's a big difference. Like four x linear is sixty four x volumetric, whereas you know four x volumetric is one point three x. You know one they have a cubic relationship those two. Mm -hmm. uh, so unfortunately, that note is a little bit vague and and it's hard to get some really hard technical uh, stuff out of it. But you know, they've been talking about increasing the resolution of the occupancy network near the vehicles. We know that uh, they, you know, that's going to be necessary to getting the ultrasonics off of the car so it can see better, like really close to the vehicle. And it could be that there's something about driving conditions where being able to, uh, you know, deal volumetrically with stuff really close to the car is a critical component of dealing with the adverse uh, weather uh, conditions. Like, I thought about that a little bit, and I don't really see the relationship, but maybe there's something there. The other stuff, camera calibration and whatnot, these are also, uh, I mean, we, we know they have a chunk of the neural network which calibrates cameras. Um, to some extent, you know, the forward-facing cameras are kind of the reference for the vehicle, and the side cameras 
you know, essentially your two pillars have to calibrate themselves against the, they, they have to figure out what the exact alignment relationship is with the front camera. And then the, uh, and then the rears are probably doing a similar, th or sorry, the, um, the repeaters are probably doing the same thing with the, uh, with the pillars on the same side to get their re reference calibration. So it could be that as they, they, that as they move to this higher resolution, this higher voxel resolution, they want to get out of the occupancy network that the previous calibration for the side cameras was insufficient, you know, because if it's not good, then what you're going to have is the error rate, you know, you have these places where the cameras overlap. And if your calibration, your alignment calibration isn't very good, then your error rate for the voxels in those overlap zones is going to be, higher than it would be otherwise. So you want to fix the cal. Uh, so I'm assuming that they, uh, you know, they tuned up that calibration network for the side cameras to, to help resolve that issue. Got it. Um, all right. Number three says improved merging behavior by leveraging lane geometry and lane bounds association with course map information and better gap selection algorithms, allowing for a smoother and safer experience. Yeah. So we've, uh, you know, uh, Merges have always been kind of interesting. Uh, you it, to a human being, merges don't seem very complicated because your mind, your mind basically looks at a merge and it and it just picks the section of it which is the lane that's relevant to you. And we don't really think too hard about well, where does it stop being one lane and where does it start being two? Well, apparently Tesla and their planning software they had they had rules that it uses in when there's one lane and rules that it uses when there's two, and it has to make a decision about whether you know, whether it's one or two and when it does that switch over and you'd get this kind of abrupt change in behavior, which would make the, you know, merges or splits would sometimes be very kind of weird depending it's splits have a lot of it splits seem so simple. Right. And then you start thinking about like how you do the code on them. And then you start seeing all these funny little things you have to deal with. There's long splits and short splits There's splits that start really wide and then go wide. There's splits that are asymmetric, right? When you have a split that where one at where one of them is an exit, like a human, depending on the split, a human will decide the right thing to do is to stay in the center of the lane and then move to one or the other. And other, other times the right behavior, the nominal behavior is, well, you hug one line or the other. Like if, if, if the split is one of them is an exit, then you typically hug the lane line of the, of the part of the lane that's not exiting, for instance, or you hug the part that is if you are exiting, right? And the car hasn't done any of that kind of behavior, which I think is disconcerting because humans, we have this mental model we use for what the for what the lane is in this vague inter, in, in transition area and it's always been kind of weird so it's and and part of the problem is that the vehicles always had a horizon to work with like if you're if your split is has always is pretty short you know and you're talking about traveling like you know a couple hundred feet between when it's one and distinctly two like the car's always done really well in that situation. But when you have the ones that are a quarter mile long, right, because there's an exit coming, or you've got some weird stuff where like, you know, there's a shoulder and part of it has a stripe or it doesn't, or there's a gore zone and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Network hasn't done super well with that. So it's nice to hear that, you know, they're adding clips that are specific to, to making that uh, a better experience for the driver. Yeah. I mean, it seems like they're still relying though on algorithms, heuristics a bit more on mm -hmm. The planning, the, these merging right. Right, planning. Yeah. Yeah. So they, you know, they, for a long time, they've had a neural network that basically looks at the scene and says, this is probably the way you want to go. Right. And then a couple of versions back, they added map data in because it used to be, 
that the uh, the path planning portion of the neural network, it would pick a smooth path that made sense in the visual context of the scene. And uh, that was a big improvement prior to, I mean, they added that like, I don't know, two or three years ago now, they've had it for quite a while. Uh, but when they first added it, things got a lot better. It was a really big improvement, but you get this thing where, um, you know, you have distinct lanes and sometimes, you know, like everybody's seen this thing where you're like, you pull to an intersection and you're going to either go straight or turn right, but you're in, and you're in a lane that could either go straight or turn right. And the path planner, it's like, go straight, turn right. You know, you see it wavering yeah. between these two choices. Like what is going on with that? Well, the thing is that part of the neural network is saying, oh, this is the most probable path, right? Well, imagine if you're in it, now, this is without taking map input. So like it wasn't considering where the nav system said you want to go. It's just like, oh, where should the car go here? Well, you're sitting at an intersection in the lane that can go straight or turn right. Well, it's a 50-50 toss up, <laughs> or maybe it's not, you know, depending on the intersection, I might say, well, most of the time we go straight here. Most of the time we turn right. It's looking at its experience and saying, well, if you go straight, this is the way to go. This, you know, but you get, you get these weird, you know, so the, the system has had that and then it's had a planner and the planner at points would just ignore that thing because it knows we're going straight, you know, mm. and it would ignore what the intentacle was doing until after you cross the decision threshold and start paying, uh, start paying attention to it again. But they were doing the, they were integrating the navigation data at the planning phase. And so the neural networks would uh, often be providing you with these wonky, noisy, jittery sort of intermediate, you know, decision products in the meantime, until the nav system, until the planning system got to a point where it could ignore one of the possibilities and tell the neural network, we're only going to use this one. Like, and we were stuck in that for a really long time. Um, then they added the course map data to that neural network. And we started seeing a lot less of that jitteriness around, you know, decision thresholds. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, this digression went kind of long. But oh, no, 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 no that, that actually is helpful, it, actually. Yeah. Uh, man, what was the, what was the original so point? Basically, um, okay. So back to this merging behavior, mm -hmm. um, it seems like, I mean, they say, better gap selection algorithm. So I'm assuming mm -hmm. there's still, it's not completely over to neural yeah, nets. Yeah. Right? So the, they're still using uh, algorithms. Gap selection has always been an algorithm, right? Because yeah. you like, there is a thing that you need to do, which a neural network to at this point in time is not necessarily the best way to do, which is like, you want to merge over and there's not a spot. Now you have a mile to get into that lane before your exit comes up. Should you speed up? Should you slow down? How about, is it the spot in front of the pickup or the back of the pickup? Like, which is the one you want, you know, to like maneuver for sort of in, you know, kind of indicate to the other drivers that you're going to do it, move over, don't move over. Uh, that's a plan, right? You look at a situation where right now you can't do it. There's not a big enough gap between any of the cars. Like, how do you get there to be a gap? How do you, or if there is a gap, maybe there is a good gap, but it's at the limit of like what you can get to by staying under the speed limit. Or alternately, there's a gap you can get to, but you might have to piss off the guy behind you because you might have to slowly down, right? There's, you look at this situation and you decide based on what you, on, on what you see, like what you're going to do. And then you change your plan depending on how everybody reacts to what you're doing. Like maybe you slow down because you think you can merge over, but the guy doesn't let you in. And then you sit there for a while and now the guy behind you and you've got a big gap in front of you. So now you change plans, you decide you're going to move up, right? Everybody's been there and it's a planning function, right? But it's a planning function that has to take a lot of input from the neural network. So yeah, it's planning.
Yeah. And that, and, and the, the planning stuff is it's informed by neural networks. Like they definitely use some neural networks in the planning software to smooth the process of planning or help determine, put a hard number that you can decide around a, a kind of a soft decision. This is something that we saw in AI day where, you know, they've got the pedestrian crossing and then the car coming. And so, the neural network at various points will give you hard numbers like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is this choice? <laughs> five, <laughs> the neural network says. And you got another complicated situation. So oh, that one's seven. So you pick the five instead of the seven or the seven, you know, whichever is better, that kind of stuff. So the, the neural networks do that kind of part, but you still have some C code making the hard decision. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. Right. We're going to go with this plan, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah. do you, do, would you say also they're adding in like, neural nets to give like some type of comfort indicator or even human yeah. driving sim is it similar to what what route would yeah. be the most similar that the humans would take yes. or do right yeah no they as explicitly well. said all those yeah. things right they use neural networks to sort of estimate what the jerk will be what the comfort yeah. level will be they use neural networks to to sort of to predict how much you make another car slow down and if that's bad you know is mm -hmm. it an acceptable amount of interference with someone else with another vehicle uh, same thing with pedestrians, uh, you know, and so you have some numbers which are just like absolute safety numbers. Some are preferences like comfort numbers, right? And, uh, you know, if you have to write a, an algorithm that goes through like every single voxel and decides which one is pedestrian, you know, and how fast was it in the last frame? How fast is it now? How many strides is it to where I cut it off? And then put a number on that of goodness. That's harder than putting a lot of training data in and saying, go in front, go behind, go in front, go behind, you know, and the neural network just sort of figures out like all other things being equal. This is a go in front of the pedestrian situation. And this other one, this is a go behind the pedestrian situation. So yeah, they, but, but you still have a control thing that basically, you know, puts together a set of scenarios, feeds them to a neural network. The neural network tells it how bad they are. And then it chooses the least bad one. Makes sense. All right. Uh, next uh, release note says added highway behavior to offset away from blocked lanes and generic obstacles like road deb debris, while also mm -hmm. adding a smooth handoff between in-lane offsetting and lane changing. Yeah, this will be a really nice uh, thing to have. So it, so obstacle avoidance and lane change have been two pretty distinct functions. Uh, so you like a lot of times you're, you're coming like, you know, you're driving down the road and you're on the highway I say, this is more of a problem on highways, uh, to do it smoothly and quickly, because on a highway, you don't stop to make a decision on a city street. You uh, stopping is always an option, letting the cars go by and then pulling over into the other lane to complete your maneuver on a highway. The expectation is you do not stop unless you really, really have to, because you don't want to have to get back up to speed. You don't want to stop. You know, it's just, it's a hazard to stop on a highway in a way that it just isn't on surface streets. So, so you're coming up on a piece of debris. What do you do? Well, most humans pick a lane <laughs> and they change lanes, right? Well, the car up until now has had a stop if there's debris and a separate, oh, time to change lanes to follow the nav route kind of thing. So having a smooth handoff, which is like debris, well, I was going to go that way anyway. And so it'll smoothly transition into a lane change to avoid a piece of debris instead of getting the dilemma, which like if you've driven autopilot enough, you've, mm. you've had that dilemma where there's some junk in the road and like, if you've used it for a while, like, you know, I've experienced this many times. I see a, I, you know, I see a ladder in the road. I see a paint bucket in the road. I disengage autopilot and I change lanes because I know autopilot is going to want to stop behind the paint bucket. Now here, now I'm on the freeway with cars zipping past me and I have to mm -hmm. manually make a lane. That's just not comfortable. Right. So, 
but um, the reason that they stopped was it's a it's a safety critical latency dependent kind of decision, mm-hmm. and integrating it with the lane changes is it's more complicated than it sounds like, right? I mean, you have to very quickly find like if you're going to do the lane change thing, you have to be able to do the lane change decision really really fast. And autopilot, you know, FSD has not been fast at making lane change decisions. It could be in certain circumstances, but generally it wants plenty of time to like, look at what it sees, get really comfortable that it knows where all the cars are, what, how big the gaps are, if they're getting bigger or smaller, which one it can get to do all its trajectory planning. In the meantime, you've gotten to the paint bucket, right? So uh, as FSD just got better and quicker and smoother at making all these decisions, eventually they got the time horizon down to the point where they were like, you know what, change lanes. (laughs) You can just do that now because you're, confidence level is high enough and your success rate is high enough that that can be like a reasonable decision to do. And now they integrated those two functions so that I would expect that the majority of the time you'll have a decent experience with, you know, encountering a paint bucket in your lane now, whereas it it just has never been good before. Good. Um, Improved next uh, release note says improved speed based lane change decisions to better avoid slowing down traffic in fast lanes and interfere less with navigation. Yeah, so more of the same, right? And this is a different dimension of a similar thing, like making decisions quickly, smoothly in traffic so we can avoid slowing down in the highway environment, you know, so we get more smoothness out of uh, out of the system. Makes sense. Uh, next release note says reduced uh, sensitivity for speed-based lane changes in chill mode. Yeah, so that'll be nice. Uh, if you uh, if you're if you like uh, chill driving, where you let other people go as fast as they want, and you just want your drive to be nice and smooth with big gaps around you and no excitement, um, the uh, the slowdown thing and and like essentially there there were traffic conditions where the car would just be ping ponging between lanes constantly, right? And if you just want to get where you're going and you don't, you don't know, you know, I'm not getting off this highway for 10 miles anyway. Why do I need to change lanes five times between that? I'm not in a big hurry. Uh, So the reducing the sensitivity just means, you know, the lane you're in has to be pretty egregiously bad before it decides to bail. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that or experienced that quite a few times. Um, Next release note says improved lane changes to allow higher jerk maneuvers if required to stay on route or to move away from lane blockages. Yeah, so this is more of, uh, we saw this in uh, 10.69.2 also, where they started uh, essentially allowing the vehicle to be more aggressive in order to stay on route. So up until pretty recently, uh, you know, you may have noticed that uh, that, uh, that FSD didn't place a lot of priority on like, you know, safety relative to staying on route. Like it was happy to blow right past your, your exit, right? If it was even the slightest bit concerned about being able to do that maneuver safely and especially comfortably, right? Jerk is all about comfort. Jerk is a rate of change of acceleration. And it's something humans are really sensitive to in cars. Like we're not super sensitive to acceleration. At the extremes we are, but we can deal with a lot of acceleration, but uh, but more than a moderate amount of jerk feels um, kind of shocking and uncomfortable. And and it's it's startling to uh, to passengers, right? Because um, you have to, you don't, you don't, you don't, you adjust once when the acceleration changes and you adjust again when it stops. But if it's constantly adjusting or if it adjusts really fast, your sort of body pose and musculature supporting you and all that stuff have to change. So it's uncomfortable. So 
the decision to say, you know, there are some situations where we will tolerate a little bit of discomfort because we don't want to miss our exit is, you know, that's a thing uh, that it makes sense to do it at a certain point. They've gotten to that point. And the fact that they're doing it means they've reached a certain sense of uh, level of maturity. And once again, this is, you know, FSD is going to have dramatically better perception of its situation when it's on a highway. So it can, it is appropriate and reasonable to allow it to do things that would be a little more aggressive and, you know, and which maybe have tighter time margins and whatnot than you could do before, uh, especially when they avoid having to drive 10 miles to the next exit, right? Yeah. Um, next release note says, improve smoothness at highway lane splits by being less strict about centering between lane lines and allowing lower jerk maneuvers where safe to do so. Yeah, so this is, yeah, the, uh, so AP is pretty strict about lane lines, right? It, it, it tends, uh, it, uh, and, w and when I say lane lines, I don't mean the painted lane lines. I mean, uh, AP, uh, you know, where the lanes are, where the lane boundaries are, where you are in the lane, that's a real fundamental concept that it builds a lot of things around. And you you can have situations where being too obsessed with staying in the center of your lane leads to, you know, um, you know, putting off a decision too long. I Today I was chatting with somebody online and they were talking, they asked me if when I was driving 1069 if I ran into any wide lanes, because apparently this is a big problem where they, where they live, they're constantly running into this wide lane thing where the car's ping-ponging back. You know, you got to, and the, the wide lane thing, classically, you, you get it in splits, right? Not always in splits. It depends on how aggressive the split is, how lane, because I don't know if you notice this, uh, highway lanes can be, you know, they can be as narrow as maybe 10 feet or something like that in a 55 mile an hour zone, but nominally they're like 13, 14 feet wide. And to the car, it's a big difference, the difference between those two. And when you, so when a lane is gradually transitioning from narrow to wide, you know, the car's sort of categorization of the situations in will change unless it's looking well up the road and planning. And autopilot has not been brilliant at looking way up the road, seeing the connectivity of the lanes and making decisions the way a human being would, you know, looking a thousand feet up the road or 500 feet up the road. So you, you get weird stuff. Now, FSD is a better platform for doing that kind of stuff. And it sounds like, you know, that's, that's a thing that they're doing now. They're now they can look farther along. And so they can, they can, they can get away from this dichotomy of it must be way in lane or it must be two lanes and you must act accordingly, according to that and have this hard threshold where it changes. It can have this kind of, oh, we're kind of transitioning from one lane to two lane. And there's this other category of behavior that you can engage in depending on how that transition is occurring, right? It's a more complicated set of rules for a human being to write. It's an easier thing for a neural network to look at and say, yeah, just hug the left lane, that'll, uh, hug the left lane line, that'll be fine. Got it. Yeah, a lot of these um, <clears throat> release notes are, it seems like the, the neural nets, the whole system is getting better, smarter. And so they're allowing for that to, yeah, um, yeah so it's not so rigid you know, and actually letting the capabilities determine, you know, the route a bit more. Um, last release yeah. note says reduce latency of trajectory optimization by 20% on average without sacrificing behavior by leveraging numerical tricks for more efficient computations. Yeah. So they, you know, they did some uh, geeky optimization to get more out of their hardware with the same uh, software. 
And uh, that gave them a 20% shorter latency. So 20% shorter latency, you know, it, once again, it feeds into this stuff. Th things that highways have is they have a different, that are different from surfaces. They have a different kind of core, opti uh, you know, operating mode. Like I said, you don't stop on highways, right? Whereas on surface streets, by default, if you're in a tricky situation, you stop. Mm. Um, and that that requires for you to be able to smoothly operate on highways to make a lot more sort of time critical, you know, important safety critical decisions, you know, where you have a hard window and you have to make a decision about that kind of stuff and doing that smoothly with low jerk and all that kind of stuff is tough. And on FSD, they just haven't, it's not been a priority because they've been operating on surface streets. Now they want to go to highways. They need to solve those problems. And what we're seeing on 11.1 is like now they've decided to merge those stacks this is a bucket list of all the things that you want FSD to be able to do well, not just because FSD needs to be able to do them well, but because there'll be a meaningful improvement over the experience people have had on highway AP also. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, yeah, this um, it's interesting. Version 11, um, single stack, um, more improvements just all across the board. Um, what are what do you think we can people can expect from version 11? Do you think it will be a, a jump of just, you know, I, I, also, do you think these release notes will be accurate by the time version 11 comes out? Because it seems like, I mean, still probably at least a few weeks away, right? I mean, well, they went yeah. into it's, you know, my experience with big changes is they take longer than you want them to, right? Yeah. I mean, all of, I can't remember Tesla having a significant functional improvement that we were anticipating that didn't run a little on the late side. Um, some of them quite late, um, but they sound like they really want to get it out this year at, yeah. at AI day. One of the few things that, that I, uh, you know, for the most part, um, people stick to the script at AI day too, when you were there, I mean, there was a stuff yeah. in the presentation, there's stuff the company has said before, and people mostly stick with that. But, uh, but you know, there were employees that I saw talking about this stuff that like, we're going to get the single stack this year. We're going to go wide release this year. You, like they want that. They really, they, they want that. Mm -hmm. um, this is their shot at doing that. I think they they very much want to try to make it happen this year. Um, and I think it would be really cool if they did. You know, if it happens in the second week of January, to me, that's not a colossal failure or anything. But, you know, they got, got to have objectives. So, um I, I do think there's a good chance we'll get it. I would expect it for you know, to be later December. And Elon, he responded to Zach on Twitter. Zach asked him, by wide release, do you mean everybody who bought FSD or do you just mean? And Elon said, yeah, everybody who got FSD will get it. So that's that's a really big change. To me, I think I said once before, some number of videos back, probably six months ago, that, that a really interesting uh, kind of uh, milestone for me would be when they let everybody who bought FSD have FSD in their cars mm. um, like that. That's a threshold of maturity and confidence that they're displaying in the uh, in the product because they're letting everybody's grandpa and grandma use it. Now, you know, it's not just the early adopters or the people who are really enthusiastic about it or yeah. the people who are willing to jump through the safety hoops like it's safe enough and good enough now that we can put it in the hands. That doesn't mean it's perfect, right? There'll still be glitches and there might be lots of people who decide they still don't want to use it or whatever, but the company's own internal confidence level will have, will have to hit a significant threshold for that to happen. I do expect that to happen really soon now, hopefully this year, probably, you know, like I'd say probably 80%, 70, 80% chance we get it in December. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because with FSD, um, earlier in the year, Elon was saying like FSD and Starship were his two biggest kind of focuses or headaches or problems he's trying mm-hmm. to focus on. And <clears throat> fast forward now, you, we, I think we have a, li- a little bit more details or color on what's going on because you had Carpathy, um, you know, in his recent interview with with um, Lex Friedman saying like he felt he had built Tesla's AI organization sufficiently where it was going to be mm-hmm. um, okay, you know, on its own. And it was, mm-hmm. um, and I think that kind of tells a lot. And then also Elon being able to step into Twitter also and kind of focus on Twitter for a yeah. while. It kind of, um, I mean, people can look at it with, you know, the glass half empty as well, you know, but if you look at it from a different angle, you could say, Hey, Tesla's FSD program went through some major, major, um, improvements, building foundations. It took years, but eventually they got to this place where it was very solid. We, we got, um, all the bright pieces and people in place, um, Karpathy and Elon and others, you know, really pushed forward. And now we're seeing the fruit of that. And you can argue that I, I would say that the most important technology for Tesla long-term is AI and FSD because that will enable all the other, you know, the optimists, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, looking at it from a different angle, you could say that, Hey, you know, Elon stepping into Twitter is not hundred percent negative. Yeah. It's a sign of confidence that hey, Tesla's doing well, their main technology that's going to ride them for many, many decades to to come has been set up very well. It's progressing well. And I think FSD beta 11 being on track to be released soon is another indication of that. You know, I think Elon can kind of trick people where he's tweeting out these tweets that seem so kind of crazy and haphazard and just like off the cuff. People don't think like he's serious anymore, you know, but in Mm -hmm. reality, no, there are serious people at work, you know, (laughs) um, getting stuff done and, um, still, you know, pushing forward big time. So yeah. Anyways. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems really, uh, I like the way I think of it is the, the glide path, at least for, you know, the near future looks pretty solid, looks pretty smooth. You know, so now if, you know, if there's something else that needs attention now is a fine time to do that. And that makes me confident about where it is. And my, my sense, it is a pretty smooth glide. Like I was worried about the, I couldn't figure out for a long time why they hadn't done the highway stack yet, because it has felt to me for quite some time now that FSD was, it was okay on highways. You know, the, the biggest flaw that I saw in it is its time horizon seemed like it was kind of short and I've been sort of my operating theory has been that it hasn't had the horizon needed for, for doing operations at speed. And now I look at these nodes and, you know, having used it a, a bunch more since then. And I kind of feel like, you know, it was more in the vein of we can do highway whenever we want to, but we really got to get the city stuff down. Right. So we're just not going to think very hard about highway until we got the city stuff down. And if that's the case, well, they're adding the highway. That must mean they got the city stuff down, right? Yeah, that's true. So yeah, it's yeah, good. yeah, definitely. Um, sounds good. Um, <clears throat> we'll go ahead and let, let's wrap up. Um, we'll wrap up the FSD discussion um, um, right here. Um, I asked uh, James to. Um, I wanted to discuss um, another topic with James on language acquisition. So um, mm-hmm. I'm working on um, kind of a prototype of a language learning app. Um, and I wanted James's take on it, or just on the topic of um, learning language 
and some different kind of ideas I want to toss out. So um, originally I wanted to make it an unlisted video because I felt like, you know, it won't appeal to everyone. But mm -hmm. I figure actually um, people can just kind of turn off the video and move on if they're not interested in kind of a topic of language learning or actually building mental skills and actually mm -hmm. what role technology or even AI could play. If you're not interested in that, don't just mm -hmm. turn off and move on. Uh, that's fine. But I figure I'll just include it in this video because there might be some people interested in this discussion. I think it's kind of fascinating. So we'll go ahead and just um, transition into this other topic of language learning. So I want to explain actually, James, to you first the background or the context. So I always felt like I wanted to give my kids a world kind of global experience growing up. I feel like multicultural kind of lenses, experiences really are beneficial. They've benefited me a lot. Um, and they've helped me to look at things from different angles and not just be boxed in, in a certain way. And um, so I knew I wanted to give my kids a global experience. We were shut down kind of with the pandemic. So I just took them RV camping for three or four months out of every year for the past few years. But um, we started to do uh, some international trips. Our first trip was about a month or two ago. We went to Mexico for the first time. And when my kids came back after a couple of weeks, they actually got interested in learning Spanish. And they um, they were playing around with Duolingo, the, the language app and some other apps. And they really got into it. They're like, you know, wow, this is fun. This is cool. And they're learning. But it's kind of slow and they're kind of always asking me for help and all this stuff. So we just came back from our second Mexico trip just yesterday. So we were there um, for a week or so. And uh, my kids really are getting into kind of this, the possibility of learning Spanish. And they're like, they want to learn. And my kids are only four and seven years old. Um, and it, it gives me this idea of like, what if they could learn three or four languages, you know? like. Mm -hmm. I would like them to learn English, of course, uh, maybe Spanish, Korean because of their ancestry, and maybe like French or different, I don't know, some other language, mm -hmm. but to the point where they could be confident, they could say pretty much everything they want to in that you know, language. And I think they have a good shot at doing it over the next few years if they have the right method and the right kind of uh, teaching. And as I look through these language apps, I'm just not happy with them. Like I feel like... Duolingo is like, you know, okay, but it just is too slow. It's, it doesn't give them all of the words and the sentences that they need to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I've been researching and listening to as many of these outlier method language app or language methods. Like how can you quickly acquire a language in the shortest amount, mm -hmm. of, amount of period? Like who are the mm -hmm. outliers who are claiming they could do it like, you know, in weeks instead of years and mm -hmm. seeing if there are any principles or what, what they're doing. But I thought about you because I know you've been uh, working on Japanese for many, many years. Uh, your mm -hmm. computers in Japanese, like, <laughs> um, isn't like one of the main, like, you watch your entertainment in Japanese, right? I mean, yeah, for, yeah. On yeah. My, it, and in media I consume for pleasure. I switched over to mm -hmm. it, it just, you know, I mean, that's informed by my own experience with what it takes to acquire skill and maintain yeah. skill over the long term. is like, you, you can't put it down. It you have to constantly like I'm going to have a lot of opinions on this that are going to, that are, <laughs> I'm going to get darts thrown at me on this stuff, but I'm, I do have a lot of strong opinions about uh, this stuff. One yeah. of them uh, centers around this, like what is the utility in learning multiple languages? Like, yeah. I think there are lots of benefits that you get from it. I think the benefits can be 
the, both the costs and the benefits are, you know, for whatever reason, they're quite different than kind of the cultural perception of them is. Um, you don't, first of all, languages, they're not free. That like there is a cost associated with them. You have a finite amount of language resources. That Now this is, you know, the human brain is very, it's Actually, flexible. Before, before you go into, yeah. I'm going to go back to this. So I want to finish the context a bit. So, so okay. um, yeah, so coming back to um, the U.S. this time, um, I started to draft some kind of screenshots or mock-ups of what I think would be the ideal method to learn a language quickly. Um, and so I started to, I have like a full-time developer I on in our kind of the company I, I still run my, my free time where he plays around with ideas that I have and he's been doing this for years. So I, a full-time guy just like doing all these ideas. So he's working on this idea now. Most of my ideas, they never pan out. You know, that's kind of <laughs> how it works out. But um, he's working on kind of the prototyping of this language app um, and I want to test it out on my kids and, um, maybe some others, but, uh, some of the, the questions or things I wanted to feel to you is like, first of all, it feels like language learning is kind of in the bigger, bigger realm of learning a mental skill, teaching your brain, um, a new way to do something. Right. Um, and it's in the field of maybe many things that you learn. It's related to many, many other things that your maybe your brain picks up, but it's an interesting kind of, um, addressable market. It's, it's, it's very vast where people always are probably wanting to pick up something. It's very vast. It could, it could be valuable. It depends on what the skill is. And there is this question of like, does AI, AI in a way can replace the need to learn certain mental skills, you know, um, for example, like language, if you could just, for example, get away with, you know, translation and translators or other things. Um, yeah. but then there is, seems to be, there does seem to be some inherent, uh, value in learning some mental skills. Um, and so I guess some of the, the questions I want to toss out is with language learning, um, how have you found kind of the, the most effective method? Have you, are there any, uh, things you think that are taught wrong with language that you think, you know, over the years that you've, you've kind of latched onto also what's the future of language learning? Can AI really come alongside and help people learn new mental skills quickly. And like, you know, what are some examples or some things to look out for, or, you know, things to be exposed with. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, kind of, you know, what's your kind of overall take with, you know, language learning and, um, yeah, trying to brainstorm some ideas here. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's super hard to say, like, I think it's really complicated. There's a lot of different, there, there are many different languages and the transition between languages, like, you know, we were talking about Spanish versus Japanese. And I was saying earlier that I, you know, it's hard for me, a lot of the, 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 I don't know, advice, you know, insight that I might have to offer about languages informed by my experience with Japanese, which is going to be really different for a native English speaker than Spanish, because it's, five times as much effort, say. Yeah, I mean, depending on the level of proficiency, what particular skill mix you want, whether we're talking about, you know, formal or informal, you know, and, and these are, what's complicated and what's easy is a very interesting mix. Like in certain respects, informal language is easier, but to be good at informal languages is actually much, much harder than to be good at formal language. Formal languages tend to have more rules to them. Once you learn the rules and you see the patterns and that kind of stuff, you know, it's more standardized because 
formal components of language are things lots of people speak, even to total strangers. So it has to be simpler. But the kind of stuff that you speak to, you know, the homies down on the street corner or the way you talk to your friend when you go to the gym, that's actually more complicated. So like, what do you want? Do you want to be able to, you know, because some people, some people want the experience of learning it. Some people want it for some particular functional dimension. And there's many different functional dimensions. I mean, there's at least four core skills, which are shockingly independent. There's being able to hear, there's being able to listen, mm -hmm. being able to speak, being able to read and being able to write. And these all sound like they're closely related. And I can tell you from experience, they're quite independent skills and they take quite independent focus. So for a lot of people, you need one or two of these and you, but you don't need all four. Some people need all four. Like if you want to live in a country, go, you know, like if you want to go native someplace, well, obviously you need all of them. You want to be a tourist you you need a lot less and surprisingly you're uh learning listening is is in in certain respects it's the hardest skill but it's also the most important and most fundamental one like speaking we tend to measure people on how well they speak but the thing is if you know one way to say anything and you're a tourist you're you're done right but you need to be able to understand a hundred different ways the answer could come back right so the combinatorial you know so anyway point is it's really, you know, the the um, the landscape of costs and benefits and different skills that you can achieve, and also the landscape of motivations people bring to it is is pretty complicated. And so, like one thing I would say is, there's not you're unlikely to find something which is a good fit for like lots of people on lots of different dimensions. You know, to really do a good job of covering the landscape of things people want to learn languages for and the things that they get out of learning languages, you probably need, you know, at a minimum, several different approaches optimized for each one of those, because it is a big investment. Like if you, if it's just fun for you and you have lots of time, then you can afford to do it. But learning languages can be super, super time intensive. If you want, you know, to learn to a significant level of proficiency and you care about the quality of what your production or how, well, you understand people like if you if you if you care about your performance kind of at all and you have any kind of limits on your time, like it, learning languages is super it's in like before I started doing this, I spent a lot of time looking at the cognitives, you know, the history of learning language, the dynamics, you know, the objective data for doing this kind of stuff, what people get out of it, um, you know, what it, what it really takes uh, to. Uh, to get there and then trying to score that against other sort of mental skills, right? And one of the hierarchies I came up with is like language is the second most to a human being is the second biggest and second most fundamental skill that we develop after our ability to functionally manipulate our body, right? So this the, the, the core lowest, biggest, you know, most fundamental, longest term, most complicated skill you learn is is like literally your brain has to learn how to use your body when you're an infant. And that actually takes a long time. And it's not something that you like perfect at age 13 and you're done, right? There's all kinds of sub skills to that that you can like, obviously you can learn new sports and that kind of stuff, but your coordination can get continue to get better in certain domains for like as long as you live, if you want. It's a lifelong skill learning to use your body well. and your body changes all the time. So there's all this adaptation. And I think language is probably the second biggest, most complicated skill. It's inseparable in, you know, in human societies, it's inseparable from the culture that we live in. Like those two are mixed together in ways that are, that are really, really deep. And so to some extent, if you really want to understand the language of a culture, but beyond the superficial of a, 
if you want to learn a language beyond a superficial level, you have to learn a certain amount about the culture that, the, that it's used in, right? Because as soon as you start getting to situations where you want to understand that are nuanced, thing, things that are nuanced, you have to develop a mental model of the people you're likely to be interacting with. And you can't have a decent, a nuanced mental model of somebody without knowing something about their culture. Yeah. So like, you know, this rabbit hole goes really, really deep if you're serious about it and you actually want to get good at it. On the, the flip side is, you know, I think there's a large population of people who they just want to develop tourist Spanish, right? So that they can order some cervezas when they <laughs> when they go to the bar, right? And uh, I think you can do that really, really, especially if it's a disposable skill. Like if you want to learn Spanish and retain it, that is a qualitatively different commitment than learn Spanish and use it for a few vacations. And then you're perfectly happy if you never use it again or you lose it. And that trade-off is even more complicated for kids because neuroplasticity in kids, is a, it's a two-way street. You learn really fast when you're a kid, but you also forget really fast, right? So you can put a ton of effort into learning a bunch of languages when you're 12 years old, right? And if you stop at 15 or 16, you will retain none of them at the age of 20. They'll just be gone because the neuroplasticity of kids is so high that new stuff that they're constantly getting exposed to will very quickly erase any complex skill that they do not use on a regular basis. Right now, that, that equation is different for adults. You know, at, at the older you get, the older you lock in a language skill, the longer you can retain it with a moderate amount of use. But for kids, it's really different. Like, if you, you, I mean, kids, they can get super functional really quickly, but they got to stay on that boat up until the point that it's locked in, which like for a kid, that's not going to be until they're somewhere between 18 and 25 years old. Right. So so if you. If, if your idea about learning a bunch of languages when you're a kid is like, well, I'm going to learn them and then I'll have them when I'm 40. Look, I got bad news. Yeah. Right? You will have them when you're 40 if you continue to use them all on a regular basis until you're like 25. And yeah. otherwise, you will not have them when you're 40. Okay. So with kids, you know, having um, um, more neuroplasticity, how does that help them or, you know, make it difficult to learn language. Like you know, the typical conventional thought is, oh, kids pick up languages quicker, at least pronunciation, yeah. other stuff. But then yeah. on the flip side, don't adults also have a lot more experience in learning, a lot more ideas, mm -hmm. concepts like yeah. that they could leverage right. to? So so what are the benefits of, of that the uh, kids have and also, you know, challenges? Well, so kids, kids' brains remold themselves to what they're currently experiencing very quickly. Um, and, which is why they lose stuff because your, your brain, your brain is happy to throw away anything you haven't used recently. If it helps it learn something that you're doing right now, it's perfectly happy to throw that skill away. Now, throwing a skill away generally, you know, it's a soft degradation thing. It's not like you can do it versus you can't do it. It's like, it takes you longer to get into the mode. There are nuanced words you don't get. It's nuances is nuance is nuanced, right? Um, most of the of the tools that we have for evaluating ourselves and evaluating other people are really crude. Like how many words do you know? That's really crude, right? Like words have a hundred definitions. If you know one, it counts as learning the word, right? And using words in different contexts can have all kinds of things. And we don't tend to measure that. Well, nuance goes away really quickly when you stop using a language. If you don't care about that, then maybe that's fine, right? But if you if the nuance, you know, 
nuance is what you get once you get beyond a certain point, right? That's most of where your effort is going. Like you may not be picking up as many words and although ad adults do, you know, it's a new language learners of a completely new language who actually put effort into it. You pick up a thousand words a year or you can pick up 2000 words a year for your first year or two. And then you can pick up a thousand words a year, just kind of naturally using the language forever for 50 years. You know, they look at this on like people between the ages of 50 and 70, they're still picking up a thousand new words a year, right? So they're, they're, it's not like it, it ends, but that's if you're using it, right? As soon as you stop using it, so kind of that starts rolling backwards. But the stuff that you're losing isn't, you know, the, the, you know, the one definition of the most recent word you learned, it might be nuanced definitions, you know, of the, you know, the, the word in your language, which has 26 different definitions, depending on how you use it in the sense, you start losing a couple of those, right? And that means you, you, that, that your, your ability to per, perceive nuance will, will go away pretty quickly and you won't notice it because nuance is subtle, right? But it, you know, that's all part and parcel of this of this thing, like measuring language performance is really hard, even in yourself. Um, acquiring it is mostly a matter of time and exposure. Like one, one of the things that I was surprised about from my own sort of experience with this kind of stuff is it actually doesn't take a lot of structure to pick up language. Like your brain is a sieve when it comes to language, like it will extract language from whatever you expose it to, like, and, and it's amazingly efficient at it, um, you know, but it, it extracts what you can extract from whatever it is that you expose yourself to, right? Um, so the, the good news is like, you know, there are a zillion different ways you can go at it. They can all be pretty effective. The core ingredient is time and attention. Right. I, you will. And uh, Andre said this in that you mentioned that interview with Lex, which I thought was a great formulation. I'd never thought of before when, you know, Lex asked his standard uh, question, like, what 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 advice do you have for, you know, people getting into stuff? And Andre, you know, in a nutshell, basically said, look, find the thing you want to do and just spend a lot of time on it. And it doesn't really matter how you spend the time. I mean, it does matter. I don't want to completely disregard it, but there's lots of different approaches you could take to spending you know, a thousand hours on something or 2000 hours on something. And if you spend 10,000 hours on something, you can be pretty good. Instantly, I have like 30,000 hours invested in Japanese now, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 hours, depending on how you measure it. Um, so languages, and this is also like your body, our standards, our standards, we have a certain standard for playing the violin. Not very many people spend 10,000 hours playing the violin. So by our standards, if you've spent your 10,000 hours, you're really good at it, right? But the thing is, everybody spends 50,000 hours learning their native language, right? So by the time that you're, I don't know, what is it? Your average, I read the stat, your average four-year-old has 10,000 hours of learning in their native language, right? And so how good is a four-year-old, right? But that's the standard we use for like a professional violinist as far as playing the violin goes, you know? by the time that you're 50, because think about this, like your whole life, when you dream at night, your brain is using language. Every time you listen to anybody speak, you're using language, everything you say, everything you read, right? Everything you write, right? Everything you imagine in your head, when you're thinking through stuff you do the day, use your language so many hours every day. So our standards for what constitutes proficiency at language, they're in a whole different level than when we compare it to you know, scuba diving or motorcycle riding or, you know, lecturing at a, at a college or whatever the deal is. It just takes, 
it like the, the, now the flip side is, like I said, find a way to just spend time on it and you will pick it up because, uh, you know, I thought that when I started that learning language was going to be like, you know, like other kind of rational skills that you acquire, like learning science or say, say something like that. And it's not like that. Um, I like one of the things I learned kind of directly through experience is your brain wants to learn language in a way it like it doesn't it, very few things. Like if you if you expose yourself to it, you will pick it up, but you have to expose yourself to it. And it does take a lot of time if you want to get really good. But the flip side is if you have very low expectations, you just want to, you know, get your tourist Spanish knocked off and it's a throwaway project that you just want to have fun with. Well, that can be very little. I think, it, you know, three, three months of diligent work will probably get a native English speaker functional in tourist Spanish, mm-hmm. you right. know, and, which is yeah. a pretty lightweight experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, okay. I had this I this thought as I was walking around Mexico last week. I'm like picking up like learning your first language. It's it, it it's it is a you know big thing, but everyone practically almost everyone does it. You know, so it's not a skill that is like so difficult that you know only a certain small percent of people can 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 do that skill, right? It's a skill that's almost universally available, um, practically. Um, You're human. Yeah, but why is picking up a second language so difficult for for most people? I don't think uh, picking up a second language is actually difficult. Um, I think it's, you know, it's actually very, it's almost identically difficult to, and one, an interesting thing I did, so I didn't start learning Japanese, which is arguably like one of the hardest languages to learn starting from native English. One of the reasons I picked it was the difficulty of, of the thing. And I benchmarked myself against, for the first few years I was doing it against what was generally understood to be the capabilities of a comparably aged Japanese child, (laughs) right? So it's a benchmark, like, you know, can I learn as much Japanese in 10 years as a Japanese 10 year old, right? It's an interesting metric of, of plasticity. Now, you get fouled up in, in one respect, which is I already understand the world pretty well. And the Japanese kid, he's having to learn the world at the same time, right? So like there might be a very nuanced word in Japanese that I want to know the meaning of, and it has a translation in English. And so I can look it up in a dictionary and all of a sudden I know the mental concept that matches on the word. That's a big advantage over the kid who has to like figure out the concept from context because you you learn almost no words by having them explained to you. You pick up almost everything just by being exposed to it in context. And this is true of kids. This is true of adults, right? You can consciously, explicitly, uh, you know, study the definitions of stuff and whatnot, and that has its place. But almost everything that you learn, you're going to learn by just seeing it in context, a bunch of different contexts, and you'll pick it up. And the human brain is amazing. Like, I learned, like, I, I must, I know so many words that I saw once in Japanese. And like the second time I saw it, two years later, I knew what it meant. Now, normally with an SS, uh, you know, space repetition system, memorization, cue card thing, like I did 40,000 of those cards over the first three years I was studying Japanese. So I'm quite familiar with like how much effort it can take to explicitly memorize a word out of context, because, you know, one of the problems with flashcards is you don't get a lot of context. You just get the context in the flashcard. Right. But once you, you know, you see a word in context in a way that's meaningful when it's on the threshold of something you can understand, it's not too far out. 
and it's not too easy and you just pick it up the first time uh, and you will retain it a really long time if you keep using those kinds of contexts. And I don't know what the mechanism for that is. Mm -hmm. It's mysterious, but I have tons and tons of documented examples of it happening. So it's a real thing. So, you know, exposure, you, you get the exposure, uh, it'll work. Okay. So you bring up actually a lot of interesting things here. Um, I mean, one is this whole issue of time, um, time spent also exposure to context. Like that's one of actually one of the big themes I've been playing around with. I don't think a lot of current approaches give enough context. They kind of pop out a word or something and say, memorize, do this, or this is what it means, but you don't get enough, like what's surrounding that word or that meaning, you know, mm -hmm. um, enough. And, um, so is there like, what, what did you do? What have you done? Is there things that you thought about to give more context to language learning? Um, um yeah. Well, you, so you have to pay attention and you have to think about what you're getting exposed to. And you have to come up with mechanisms for doing that. So you're not just passively, you know, getting, you, you can pick up a lot passively. Like most of my Japanese vocabulary, I picked up reading, reading Japanese books, right? I just read books. I started reading books. The first page of the first book I read took me two hours, all of which I spent in a book, I, in a dictionary, looking up one word after another, right? And after I got to the end of the first sentence, I'd forgotten half of the words in the sentence already. And I had to go look them up again. Like it took forever to get through the first page of the first book I picked up. Um, you know, now I read in Japanese about the same speed that I read in English. I encounter words that I don't know pretty often. Uh, mostly I don't know the pronunciation. Uh, the, uh, like I, from context, I almost always know what they mean. It's very, very rare for me to encounter a word where I, like I would say, you know, that's like 1% of the words that I encounter that I don't know. This is after, you know, 10 years and tens of thousands of hours of Japanese study, right? I, just like in English. I, I, yeah. I can't remember the last time I ran into a word in English I didn't know. But, it, but, you know, it happens. If I read some new category material I haven't been exposed to, I will encounter words. And mostly you will just know what they are from uh, from context. You, uh, uh, so finding a way to just get a lot of exposure in a way where you have to think about what's going on. So the books, those, those first books I read, I went back and I read them again, six months later, two years later, four years later. And, uh, and I think about like, well, first of all, the experience of it, when you're learning a language and you read a book that's written in that language, you get a lot and you miss a lot. And then you go back and you read it again six months later, and it's a different story, right? Because you've gotten better and you read it once, you know? So like you pick it up the second time more smoothly. And, and if like me, like I look at it and I think about what's different in this story than the last time I read it. And that focuses my attention on the new stuff the stuff that happened and I enjoyed that game. And so that, and because I enjoyed that doing that game so much, it ended up being a good way for me to focus my attention. Now, if I was trying to encourage somebody else to do it, or if I spoke a language and was trying to help somebody else do it, the thing I might do is watch a movie and then frequently pause and talk about the movie that's going on, right? To help maintain context was going on. Like when I started watching movies in Japanese, I watched them with subtitles, which is kind of like that, right? Working, watching a movie in a language that you don't know very well with English subtitles, it, it's a sword that cuts kind of two ways. 
on the one hand, it's a crutch, like it's an incredible crutch. So there's all kinds of stuff you don't pick up nearly as fast. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's a huge advantage. Like there's a bunch of things you pick up much faster when you're doing that. But one of the things you gain, especially when you're doing it and you are new, relatively new to a language is it keeps you on track of what's happening. And like, if you, if you don't know enough what's going on, where you get off track or you entirely misunderstand what's happening in the scene, the motivations of a character, you know, the direction the plot is going, um, then, you know, you can very quickly fall off the deep end. Instant, there's this very, really interesting study I ran into, which kind of illustrates this, which is um, you, uh, and you can, this has been repeated a bunch of times, Take a, take, a, take a newspaper article and block out some percentage of the words and then ask somebody to read it and tell you what the article is about, right? And then, and then grade them on how good they were depend, according to the number of words. Okay, so it turns out if you, if you block out 50% of the words in an article, people have no idea what it's about. Like, you know, people's ability to tell what's going on. You get to 60, 70, 80, they're kind of, they're kind of figuring it out. They mostly get it right. You get to 85 and bam, people, you know, the 15%, only 15% blacked out. You got 85% of the words, they just know. You get to 90, they got perfect recall. 10% of the words in that, they a person cannot know and they will almost perfectly figure them out from context. So there's this threshold. So think about this in the context one. If you're reading something where you only know 50% of the words, <laughs> you're spending most of your time lost and you're not, you're not being very efficient at getting word meanings and that kind of stuff. You'll still get prosody, sentence structure, a bunch of other things, but you're not maximizing what you can get out of the thing, right? Once you get, once you know, you know, what 80%, and this is, I'm talking about the definitions of words. That's not the ideal metric, but it's an easy one to talk about. So that's the one I'm going to talk about, right? And it's, it's an easy, we, there's these great studies that have been done just basically doing this for native English speakers, you know, English language articles to give us a, you know, like how much of language is sufficiently redundant that you can pick up the stuff that you're missing, right? So, uh, you know, if you're, if you know like 99% or 99.9% of the words, you're probably not learning a lot of language when you read this thing. It's reinforcing what you already know. And that's still useful. Just like you can be a great skier, but skiing every day is still really useful for keeping you on your toes. And similarly, you know, you can be a great, you know, reader of a particular language, but still reading every day is going to reinforce, you're still going to gain, like there's there little edge gains and it's reinforcing all the other things that you know, because you're constantly testing your knowledge against the stuff that you get exposed to. It, it continues to be useful for a really long time. But the optimum rate of acquiring fundamentals in a language is probably when you're exposing yourself to somewhere to material where you know around 85% plus or minus between 80 and 90% of material. Now I can tell you, because I did this experiment that reading something where, you know, 85% of the words, it's really unsatisfying, <laughs> right? Like if you're interested in this story, it can be super frustrating because you know, you want to see what happens next. Um, it's a lot more comfortable to read when you know 95%. It's a lot more fun. It's a lot easier and lighthearted and engaging, and you still learn really fast. So generally, like if I was going to pick a number, I would encourage people, and this is not a hard and fast thing. Like generally, if you read stuff that's easy for you or hard for you, uh, 
you uh, and uh, and I'm using reading like this is also true of like watching movies or listening to radio stations or listen to music, right? Listen to music in your target language. Find something where you can under you could understand the vocals if you spoke the language. A lot of music you can't understand the vocals even if you do, so that's not very helpful. Um, and uh, and try to figure out what people are saying. You know, when when you when you listen to this stuff, I. I never listened to lyrics in English language songs, which I didn't realize until I started listening to lyrics in Japanese language songs. Right? Now when I listen to English language songs, like I, I, I hear all the lyrics because I've, foc I've learned to focus on what people are saying and use it as a game to play to, you know, the, to, to make it interesting, to keep the, to keep things in, engaged with what's going so on. Would so you say, would you say 85% um, is better than 95%? Let's say of something like you understand, would you learn more or if you can stay motivated with it? Yeah, yeah I see. Okay. So I started with 0%, right? Yeah. So I've seen the whole spectrum. Like I read, you know, I've read whole novels where I didn't understand 50% of the words, like many whole novels. So I've seen the whole spectrum and I can tell you, it's not much fun. You do learn yeah. pretty fast. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, you know, it's really hard, but you get to where, you know, 90% or 95% of the words. And now it's really, so I, the, one of the big turning points for me, like it took me a really long time to learn to read Japanese. I like reading. Like I'm going to, I talk a lot about reading. This is equally applicable. Like I watched a lot of, like I found, you know, television series that I could rent DVD. This is back when uh, you, you know, the way you got movies was you rent, you got a, a subscription to Netflix and they sent you DVDs in the mail, right? And, uh, you know, I would find something that I thought was kind of interesting. And I, I had one of those eight discs at a time, you know, Netflix subscriptions. And I just, you know, they'd come in and I'd transcode them and I'd watch them and I'd send them back. You know, I would turn the discs around as fast as they came in. And I can I watched all of this stuff. Um, a lot of it I wasn't interested in. And so, I, you know, I'd get a couple of discs and I'm like, ah, that's no, that's not fun right now. Maybe because it's too hard or maybe it's a topic I'm just not interested in. Maybe I don't like the characters, the same reason you don't like some other movie, right? But I set it aside. And uh, for a lot of the stuff, like later, it was interesting because the reason I didn't like it the first time was it was too hard. The thing was too abstract or I didn't understand the character. And more and more of it was interesting later, which is why I ended up building an archive of this. I've got mm. terabytes of it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I watch stuff, but reading for me was really core. One of the reasons I focused on reading really early is because it's easier to measure. Like there's a lot of things about the vocal thing, which are hard to measure. Um, you Like you can measure how many hours that you spent, but it's really hard to like look at a movie and say, well, you know, uh, you know, uh, how many words was it, <laughs> right? Or, you know, how much did I consume when I did that? Because, you know, television, you know, video, it varies so much. The same thing with like radio programs. You know, you listen to the news in a language that you don't know. How do you know how much you're picking up and how much how much there was? It's harder to measure. So uh, reading stuff, it, it's hard. Japanese is especially hard language to learn to read. Um, most languages are, are a lot easier to pick up because they're more congruent with the written thing. Japanese isn't phonetic, unlike... Japanese and English have this thing in common where with, with English, you can read a word. And if you've never heard it before, you have no idea how it's pronounced. Right. I mean, it, it probably is kind of like the phonetics that you might get out of it. But, you know, this English language phonetics come from like 20 different uh, parent languages that contributed to us. 
Uh, and so you can get to be a, your adulthood as I do and discover you still don't know how to pronounce a word that you've been reading for years and years, right? Japanese has, has almost no phonetic component. So, um, you know, it's direct, the Japanese didn't have a writing system. They got a writing system from the Chinese, which was a writing system for a completely different language, the different structure and everything. And then they adapted it. And so it's this massive kludge that doesn't work very well. And that makes it hard because most languages, uh, you know, the, the, the written system is phonetic. So if you can speak the language, you can read it. And if you, you know, you just have to learn the phonetics of the written, of the written form. Anyway, once I got over that, though, it became, for me, the most powerful mechanism for, because you can read as slow as you, you can only watch a movie so slow and have it make any sense. Mm -hmm. But a book, you know, if you're not getting it, you just slow down. And, and the parts that you don't understand, you can quickly skip back to, you know, you just move your eyes back two inches and you reread that word again, see if the sentence still makes sense or whatnot. It's a, I think reading you know, if it's available to you and if it's not something that you find burdens, like if you're dyslexic, reading's not going to work for you, right? There are people there are people who don't like reading and it's not going to work for them. For me, it worked great. I'm a reader and uh, I found it to be a super powerful technique once I got the basics down. But like, here's another like really weird lesson that I learned because I was pretty confident that writing, that reading was going to be a good mechanism for me. I really prioritized it really early on. And so like I drilled all these zillions of flashcards and I learned to write and, you know, I mean, Japanese, you know, there's like 3000 kanji you have to learn just as a read a newspaper. You know, you've got to memorize all these things. They're really complicated shapes. Like you can't even see them when you start out. Like you have to train your eye to even recognize what they are. So, uh, so, so I learned like my first pass at Japanese was I learned it mostly by reading and not, and you know, I listened to it because uh, I was watching movies and all that kind of stuff, but there was very little congruency between what I was reading. Like I couldn't, uh, the narrative didn't occur in my head. Like I could look at the text and I could understand in an abstract sense what it meant, but it didn't turn into Japanese when I was reading it. And so I flipped it around at some point. And I stopped, I started focusing on the odd, like my brain completely refactored. Once my, once my acoustic, my audio proficiency in listening to Japanese got to a certain thre threshold, my brain <laughs> did this thing where it was like, all that shit you learned about written Japanese, it was wrong. <laughs> We're going to start over, <laughs> right? And it was like, I got super dumb for like six months. I just lost it because my brain was like, no, the way you need to understand the written stuff is in terms of the spoken language, right? So like I had this thing where like my reading got better and better and better. And then like it went into this cliff for like a good part of a year, six months at least. And it just got terrible. And then all of a sudden it, it started getting better and it got better at a colossally faster rate than it had been before because I wasn't just brute force memorizing this stuff and trying to make it fit according to like rules of grammar. My, you know, I had done that, but what happens is that your brain wants to learn it the way it sounds, right? And that's what your brain is really good at. Like I had memorized all of these kanji from the way their characters looked. And later I, you know, I tried memorizing them based on what they sounded like, which sounds weird because it's a written thing and it doesn't intrinsically have a sound, but you associate a sound with it. You can, if you focus on, see, 
kanjis, they have meanings and they have pronunciations when you put them in words. And initially I was focused on learning to read and learning the meanings associated with writings. And that turned out that's a dud. Don't do that. Right. The thing you want to learn is you want to hear a word in your head and know what the meaning is for that. And you start with that. That's fundamental. That's what your brain does incredibly well because language is not naturally written, right? Like human beings have been speaking language for a hundred thousand years before anybody wrote it down. Like hearing language being an acoustic phenomena, like it's, it's baked into our genetics. It is fundamental to the way that language works. And the written system is completely derivative of that. And in most languages, it's super explicitly derivative. Like it's literally a transcription of the phonetics of what you say, like that is what writing is. So, you know, a lesson I learned the hard way that I would hope other people don't do, learn the spoken system and build the writing, even if you're going to learn from reading, which is most of what I did, you know, learn the spoken system. And when you read something, hear the words in your head, train yourself mm -hmm. to do that. With most languages, that will come pretty naturally. With Japanese, it didn't, which is why I learned this hard lesson, <laughs> right? <laughs> so don't make the mistake I did, you know, read, hear the word in your head so that you're learning the sound of the word. And, you, and what happens is then when you hear it in a movie, when you hear it in a song lyric or whatever the deal is, that reinforces your reading skill, right? Because those two are connected through the sound of the words. Interesting. Would it have helped you if you had like, you know, like a computer type of book where you click on, it, it reads the sentence for you and then oh, yeah. you touch on each word to see the, the meaning. Yeah, that would have been great. Or something. Um, it would have, it might have connected the audio and the and the reading to you. It would you have. Well, so a thing that I did later was I got books on tape where I had the paper mm. book and I could do that uh, kind of stuff. And there was a tiny little window where that was really useful. Um, once you get beyond a certain fairly low level of reading proficiency and you are reading while hearing the narrator, like I, I think this is true of all, probably almost everybody. When you read a book, you hear the words in your head. You might not do it because you learned to speed read. And when I was speed, when I speed read, I don't do that because yeah. you know it's too slow to try to do it in your head. Uh, like I, I can speed read at like three thousand words a minute, and there's nothing in my head. <laughs> there's not even white noise. It's just blank. And I remember I re retain the material, but up to around five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred words a minute. Like when I read, I hear the words in my head. Normally, I read really slow, two hundred fifty or three hundred. You know, and my my brain is reading out all those words and it does that in Japanese too. Once it started doing that in Japanese, because I switched over to like learning the like making myself say the words as I read it, my my reading speed really picked up, my comprehension picked up, it linked it back to my speaking. And then the two synergized, right? My reading made my speed like uh you know, I have a Japanese tutor that, you know, I've been speaking with for a couple hours a week for years now, uh, just to get practice speaking. And uh, I want to say like half the words, half the new words that come up in conversation, like I've never heard them before. I read them someplace, which is similar mm -hmm. to English. Like they totally feed off of each other. You can read, makes your speaking better. Listening to people speak, speaking yourself, it will make your reading better also. They, they, they are totally synergistic. But in a lot of ways, I really think uh, that, that learning to read and then using reading for me was really powerful. I think it'll be really powerful for probably half of people because it's this total, it's random access and go, and go as fast or as slow as you want, which is hard. I mean, 
you can get this if you have a dedicated tutor, like somebody whose job, like your mom, is just to teach you a language who will speak as slowly, repeat things as often, and they will happily do it. And you are not embarrassed to have them repeat something 20 times, right? If you have that kind of relationship with somebody, that can be as good as reading, right? But, uh, but reading a book that you're interested in, like some genre, like if you like horror, if you like detective novels, if you like science fiction, I like science fiction. So I read all the science fiction in Japanese. You know, find a book on a topic that you like where you care about the characters and you're interested in the plot and read it in your target language because it'll suck you in and you will learn the language because you need to <laughs> to yeah. learn the story. Yeah. Um, so what benefits have you accrued from learning Japanese? Oh, man. Like, has, well, it, has, for, it, been, has it been worth it, all these tens oh, yeah. of thousands of hours? Yeah, I'm super glad that I mm -hmm. did it. Um, it's, uh, man, although, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the things I value the most are kind of hard to describe and are going to sound kind of weird. Um, uh, one of them is, uh, I have a very different perspective on the world and people now than I did before. And I don't think I could have gotten here without having learned Japanese. I, I don't, I think prior to learning Japanese, I did not understand how differently other people could think about the world genuinely and see it and how different their cares and concerns and interests could be and how different the structure of their lives could be. Now, part of that, you know, Japanese is pretty different culturally than, than the culture that I grew up in. And so that's a component of it. But the other thing is, you know, you, if you learn a new language, if you learn another language and you learn it to some significant degree of fluency so that you can interpret the culture through it and you need the culture to, to interpret the language that forces you to get your head into that other language, into that other culture in a way that nothing short of living there with natives probably can do. You know, if you watch a hundred movies in Spanish, you'll have a pretty good understanding. If you watch a hundred movies in Spanish and you understand Spanish well enough to actually get nuance out of the movies, you'll understand Spanish culture pretty well because you need to to understand the movie. Those two feed back on each other. You one of them, you know, they're they're related, so they so. So I think um, like, uh, and the other thing is I discovered that I'm able to pick and choose the values. Like there are things about American cultural values that I really like, but they've always not been quite complete for me. Mm -hmm. There are things in Japanese cultural values that I really appreciate and they kind of filled in holes that were missing. So like, I feel like the values, both in terms of like the things I care about and the things I think should be cared about, is more complete and makes more sense and it's more solid now than it was before i learned japanese which is like i said that probably sounds kind of weird i really believe it's true for me personally the the number one thing i got out of it is it was really fun <laughs> like learning japanese i mean it sounds i said you know it's taken all these tens of thousands of hours now I focused really early on, like I knew I was never going to be able to put the time in unless I found things that were fun. And so pretty much as soon as I got through the flashcard phase, because man, that was so painful. But once I got through the flashcard phase, I made a beeline for like, I, you know, I went to a bookstore, I, you know, I looked through movie catalogs and stuff and I found stuff that I was interested in, which the, the first few things are hard, but eventually you start to find a couple of things that catch your attention. And those lead you to other related things that because they're similar, sometimes they link, sometimes they're better. And uh, 
you know, and I just, I focused on doing what is the thing that I could be doing that will make me excited about doing Japanese. It'll make me want to do it. And so right now, you know, looking back on this now, 12 years since I started this, I started in uh, October 1, 2009. Mm -hmm. um, I look back on that and it's totally associated with fun things I wanted to do. Like, you know, when, uh, when I was still working and I was doing this stuff, I would come home, you know, and I'd be really excited to sit down and get that novel out or watch that movie that I was, or watch that TV series that I was partway through that I was, that I was seeing in it. And your hunger to absorb the material and to understand it, it will really drive your thirst to, to put together the word sounds and the meanings and understand the nuance and that kind of stuff. If you like uh, comedy, comedies can be really good. Mm -hmm. Comedy is really hard to understand. Like comedy is a very culture specific thing yeah. and uh, it's very slangy. It has all of these crazy abbreviations. It's often delivered in these weird tones of voice and stuff like that, you know, it requires. So it's, it can be a high hurdle to go at comedy and in, inside a thing. But if it's a thing that you like, like you will, you'll get really good at your target language really quickly. If you can do comedy in that one. Yeah. You, I, uh, I, I started with romantic comedies, incidentally, uh, which I hate in English. <laughs> and I didn't, it was a thing I kind of stumbled onto. Huh. But I have discovered, at least for me, that romantic, com romantic comedies are the same in every language. <laughs> so you know what the flow of the story is going to be. Yeah. You know what the characters are saying to each other because everybody is such a stereotype in rom-coms, right? Yeah. Anyway, so there's all this stuff that I totally hate in English that I actually really enjoy in Japanese. Uh, I used to have this expression that I felt like I was growing a little Japanese homunculus, like, I, you know, that um, because I went through this whole phase in watching Japanese where potty humor was funny again, right? Like I'm an adult, I'm 57 years old. Potty humor hasn't been amusing to me since I was like five years old probably or something like that. But in Japanese, it's suddenly really funny again, yeah. about five years in, you know? So, so I was thinking, oh, I've got a Japanese five-year-old in my head. That's why it's funny again. <laughs> but like things yeah. that are really stupid puns, like in, yeah. you know, in, in your target language, they're like delightful and surprising because that never occurred to you before. You're like, oh, this word means that one. Ha, 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 ha. Right. It's funny again, like really silly stuff. Uh, so, you know, another thing, like don't don't let your inability, don't let your lack of proficiency embarrass you. Like this is a common when you start speaking to strangers. I was completely paralyzed the first few tutor sessions I had. Um, it is really hard to get over the fact that you know you sound like a gibbering idiot when you start out. And you, you know, I knew at that point that it's really necessary to go at this with like a very sort of unselfconscious be as unselfconscious as you can, which is hard to consciously do, right? It's an oxymoron. Um, but that, but in my in your selection of material, you probably also I, it, I think it's probably very helpful to be unselfconscious. Read stuff or watch stuff that you would never watch because it's too mm. childish, because mm. in your target language, really childish stuff will be really funny for quite a while, for years after you after you start doing it. And, you know, if it brings you joy then it's good it like it'll help you learn even though it might be completely stupid yeah yeah interesting um 
Did you ever get into Japanese game shows? I mean, they have such a unique uh, sense of humor. <laughs> they, you know,、um, a lot of my my media consumption was strongly influenced by what I could get access to. When I started reading Japanese, you could not like you could go like read like really clunky news websites or whatever、mm-hmm. in really ugly fonts or whatever the deal is. But tr- trying to get the only way I could get Japanese novels in the beginning was like I had to go to. There's only like ten Japanese bookstores in all of North America. I would have、mm-hmm. to go to a Japanese language bookstore, and you know. Laboriously pour over the spines of books, trying to、oh. find something that seemed、yeah. like it worked. Or I'd find some movie series that I liked, and I'd try to find、yeah. the novelization of it. Right, like I started with that, which、um, actually worked really well. But it has this caveat that the stuff you really like is probably too hard, like in the beginning. So you end up having to like settle for something that isn't as、uh, good for you. Overall, but which is more readable for you because it's written in ways that are some. You you can find books, especially books that are written for like teenagers. Japanese. One nice thing about Japanese is it has a big culture. Like kids are readers in Japan to a greater extent than they tend to be, I think, in the U.S. Although in North America, like if you were trying to learn English, man, get Harry Potter or get. I mean, there's so many things that are written with a target audience of like 12 year olds. The language is relatively simple. You know, the, the, they don't use really complicated grammar. They don't have really long sentences. They don't use really weird, nuanced stuff. Like everything is pretty superficial and straightforward. Find that kind of stuff in a topic that you that you enjoy, whether it's a movie or a television series or whatnot. Comedy is super hard. Anyway, I saw very little Japanese、uh, TV, even though I really would have loved to, because you couldn't get it at the t- when in 2009. Like you couldn't get it over the internet, and nobody puts it on DVDs. Right,、yeah. so it's not like you can you could rent it. Like I, you certainly couldn't rent it from Netflix.、Um, getting Japanese DVDs is still like pulling teeth. Like I so, can get BitTorrents of 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 television、mm-hmm. programs now, but back then, yeah, impossible. So so what percent? Like、um, it seems like you learned most of your Japanese not in Japan. Like how much time did you actually spend in Japan during the past you know twelve、uh, years? No, a lot less than I would have liked. The pandemic really put a cramp in things the last couple of years.、Um, the first time I went was in、uh, 2014, and then I went in、uh, 2015 and 2017. After 2017, for two years I couldn't go for complicated reasons, and then the pandemic hit, and I haven't gone back. So the first time I went, I just I got a suitcase, <laughs> and I just like got on a plane and I went there, just like totally on my own to just see what I could do. And I went for a couple of weeks, and the next couple of times I went for a month, and、uh, I just went to explore the the countryside. So I've spent like I don't know what two and a half months in Japan, I guess、wow. at this point. I mean, it's 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 really interesting how most of your language journey has been apart from Japan, like you know. Um, with、yeah. materials, you books, know, video. today, especially today, like you know, what I would do today is、mm-hmm. actually quite different from what I did ten years ago.、Yeah. Mostly because technology is dramatically better. Well, I'll tell you, getting Google Translate <laughs> to help when I was reading books was so awesome. It was just like I have this Japanese dictionary, and let me tell you something yeah, about yeah. Japanese dictionaries. Right? It is really hard to find words in Japanese、mm-hmm. dictionaries. Right, because you look at the kanji, 
you know, and it's this complicated shape with these, with these things. Well, how do you look up something you, you know, there, are, you know, there are a couple of thousand kanji in Japanese kind of at a bare minimum. There's, there's 1800 called the Joyu kanji that you just have to know if you want. It's the core set that everybody uh, understands, yeah. expects you to know if you're going to read a newspaper. So everybody learns 2000. Do you, can, do you think there's an alphabetical order for 2000 kanji characters? Do you think anybody could remember it if there was? There isn't, right? So Japanese dictionaries, they have like 10 different ways. It's like, well, count how many lines there are in the character. And then you flip to the chapter where the characters have that many lines, you know? And then sometimes you break up the lines by how many vertical and horizontal and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So there's this crazy indexing systems that you have to, you know, you, anyway, it turns out they're made four different ways. I had to learn all four, right? It's just terrible. Like learning to find kanji in dictionaries is miserable. So the first couple of years, it's just like, oh my God. And then when I had Google Translate, like today, you can point it at a book and it'll tell you what the, like, you like. Know, that would have saved me so many hours. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah so true. I mean, so there's that. The, also, you know, I have Siri on don't wake up on my phone is in Japanese or was for a really long time. Recently I broke down because there are a couple of apps that only work in English. And I had to, mm. I had to flip a couple of apps over and stop using Siri that way. But, uh, you know, talking to your phone and your target language and trying to dictate messages that way, that will make you work on your pronunciation. <laughs> it really will. Like it's good. And now they have a, like you can, you know, you can use the language translation yeah. app where you talk to, you know, like there's Google's got one, Apple's got one on the phones where you can speak in one language and it'll tell you what you said. And then you can speak in the other language and hear it in the target language. Like that would have been so awesome for practicing pronunciation. And, one, and it tests you, right? Like, because boy, I'll tell you, if the phone can understand you, a native English speaker will be able to understand you just fine, right? Like you have to get pretty close in order for, for it to go. So that's great, I think. Um, just the internet, right? Because you can find so much material on basically anything that you want. You like, you can, like there's, there didn't used to be a lot of great websites in Japanese and now there are tons of them. You can get, you know, newspapers in whatever target language that you want. And, you know, BitTorrent is like mana from heaven as far as acquiring material that, that, that because as I said, finding stuff that you want to consume for reasons other than just the language, like it's, it's entertaining for some for some dimension, something that can engage you because you need to want to know like viscerally what it means when you're listening to it. Like that, that desire alone will focus your attention and bring out what you want to get from the material, right? Like reading stuff you don't want to read isn't going to get you anywhere. Like it's not. Find stuff to read, find stuff to listen to that you want to listen to, that you want to read and where you want to know what it means. Find that and focus on that. And so the thing is, because people's interests vary, and, and here's another thing, it's a moving target. Because what'll happen, you know, six months in, you'll be listening to certain material, and like six months later, that stuff's all way too easy. So you need this constant stream of a wide variety of material on many topics at many difficulties, and that is what God made the internet for. It's all out there, and that's brilliant. That's so awesome. I had thought about, you know, I mean, one of the reasons Japanese turned out to be a good target is because unlike Navajo, there's a lot of material that you can get in. Like Navajo would have been a challenge too. It would have been interesting in many ways. It's very culturally distinct from Western. You know what? They don't have movies. <laughs> so, and I don't care. Even if you have BitTorrent, Navajo is going to be hard. Yeah. 
but yeah. that's not true of like any major there's a thousand languages in the world where you can probably find video and there's probably a hundred languages in the world where you can find a lot of video on a lot of yeah. different topics yeah yeah fascinating stuff um brings me back memories like i i grew up just basically knowing english i went to school and took some Spanish classes. My parents were from Korea, but they didn't teach me anything to the point where after like a, a month of Spanish one in junior high school, I knew more Spanish than I did Korean, right? And, uh -huh. but I was interested in Korean. So I, in college, I took some classes. I studied abroad for six months in Korea that taught me enough, but, or some, but I wanted to be like fluent where I could just say anything and everything I wanted. And uh -huh. so I figured I would spend like, three or four years going to school, like grad school in Korea, in Korean. Uh -huh. And that would do it. Yeah. That would just like teach me the language. So right. I did it and I ended up in this like crazy school that was only Korean people, no foreigners basically. And uh -huh. I was like there for three years, like living, sleeping in these small rooms with like three or four other students, like uh -huh. just 24 seven, no escape. And I ended up meeting this guy who in my, uh, grade, he was like the smartest kid guy out there by far. He had been, he's mm -hmm. read everything out there. And for some reason he, he was interested in why this American Korean American yeah. would come to Korea of all places to try to learn this. Yeah. He was so confused and we, we struck up a friendship, but he was so opinionated. He was so, he had such a strong, like belief uh -huh. system, everything. And he knew about everything basically. And I yeah. have a strong opinion about a lot of stuff. And so we just <laughs> basically debated for like four or five hours every wow, day that been incredible for like training. three, for three yeah. years, basically. And, and the thing is, and you cared, right? Exactly, you cared yeah, about they're passionate topics. Thing. Right. Yeah. 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 So and that we will, would, that, that's like an insane learning experience. Yeah. We would talk about the philosophy and, um, you know, economics, religion, movies. We would actually watch these movies and then we debate <clears throat> about them for five hours straight. You wow. know, <laughs> you, had the, you had what I like the perfect tutor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You your mom. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I ended up like very quickly picking up the language, dreaming in the language, speaking because. Yeah. I had no one to speak English with it. and yeah. actually was, well, and also, mm -hmm. and you started, you started out with vo with voice, both speaking and yeah. listening, right? Which, like I said, that's the, yeah, no, it sounds like you had the perfect experience. Like, yeah. I think it would be really, really hard for somebody who doesn't, didn't do exactly what you did and meet that guy in their dorm room and have the same feelings and the same passion and discussion It'd be yeah. very difficult for somebody. Korean's hard Korean, yeah. like Japanese, it's like, like phonetically language structure. I mean, the grammar is closer to English than Japanese by a good bit, but there's a lot about Korean, which is crazy, crazy hard to do. And so like people don't pick it up quickly and they're probably, you know, the, the people who end up in a situation where they learn Korean as an adult, as well as you did, like yeah. they're going to be super rare because your situation is so perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Um, all right, James, fun stuff, man. I, I love this uh, topic, um, language learning. Um, we'll see um, what we could do. And um, yeah, I got these great beta testers, um, mm -hmm. like two kids, like they're just like <laughs> sponges, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it helps that we're homeschooling them because like, what else are we going to teach them, you know? Like go to these uh -huh. other languages, it, it gives them motivation because they're like, oh my gosh, we don't know anything in this country, you know? <laughs> yeah. And they want to learn it so bad. Get, get a, find, uh, 
find uh, some, <laughs> you know, find Disney or, you know, whatever you're willing to ex mm -hmm. expose your kids to video wise, find that in like cartoons or whatever in the target language. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think if you want your little girl to learn uh, to learn Chinese, you know, get Chinese versions of all the princess video movies. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <laughs> and she'll know it like that. <laughs> And you'll probably really regret that you wanted her to learn that. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, there's that. And the thing is, the sad thing is, you know, six months after she stops, she loses her interest in princess, you know, Disney movies. She's going to not pick it up if she's got anything at all competing for her attention. And yeah. kids do. Kids, you know, their mission in life is to learn to soak stuff up like sponges and anything they haven't used in the last. So that, that to me, that's a challenge with kids, which yeah. is not to say that I don't think, you know, learning Greek when you're a kid, like I have a friend, he was an army brat. And so he learned Greek and German and Italian when he was a kid, because, you know, his parents served overseas and he was in all these places. And his parents would say, well, like, oh, yeah, you'd play with all the kids and you were fine and you would do the stuff and you'd go to the grocery store and translate for me and all that kind of stuff, which is great. Right. He doesn't remember a word of any of it right now. Yeah. So he didn't get to retain the function of the language. Uh, I do think it probably provides linguistic benefits, even in your core language, because, mm -hmm. you know, you've got you got a chunk of your brain that all the things being equal, your brain, your brain is going to use on language, the language that you're learning. And if you learn two or three languages, you're you know, that has to work in more complicated ways. It does mean that, that of the chunk that your brain is, de is devoted, like languages have overlap. Some languages have a lot more overlap. Spanish and English have a huge amount of overlap, you know, which makes learning them easier, but it also means retaining both of them together, right? You don't have to learn two radically different vocabulary or two radically different grammars. The grammar is pretty similar. The sentence or structure is pretty similar. And so English to a greater extent will help you retain your Spanish than English is going to help you retain your, like your Russian or your Hindi. But, uh, uh, but, you know, if the goal is it, which is, you know, a lot of parents ostensibly want their kid to learn a language because they think it's easy to learn when you're a kid and it'll be really useful when you're an adult and they don't understand there's this huge gulf that has to be bridged that almost no children do. Like it is yeah. very rare for that structure to work unless you're willing to send your kid when he gets to high school to the target country and have him stay there until he graduates college. Like that'll work. But very sure. few people are going to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting. And, and um, you only get to do that with one language, obviously, since you can't go to five different high schools. Polyglot, mm -hmm. like that's a real thing, and there are people who are really good at it, and uh, and who really get a lot out of it. I don't think I. I think it is probably exceedingly rare for people to be, like. It is, I think it is really rare for people to be native, native speaker fluent in two languages, just because the investment in being native speaker fluent in one is so incredibly high. Uh, you know, kids that grow up in dual language households, even when they're in their 20s or something, you can, you can tell that there's gaps in the language that you share with them because you know, they've only got so much capacity and being a native speaker of your own language takes enormous capacity. It's not like there's no trade-off. There's a lot of benefits. There's there, but there are some costs associated with yeah. it too. If you, if you want to be a poet laureate, uh, you know, you probably don't want to be a polyglot at the same time because it's really going to restrict your, you know, your, uh, 
you know, I pick poets because they're somebody who really requires extraordinarily high level of capability in the target language that they're working in, right? Yeah. I mean, it might help them too, in some ways, to get mm-hmm. this broader exposure to ideas and cultures and the, values and peoples in the, the world. The experience of doing it, um, there's all kinds of stuff you do get out of it that you I, don't I do. I do agree. It can't be, it's hard to go equally native two languages. Like, if you have one, yeah. you know, Much main less language. Much five. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think I think to me that's the main appeal, at least for my kids, like not necessarily to retain the languages, which would be great too, but more, um, I feel like a lot of times if you are stuck in one culture, one language, one value system, one everything, mm-hmm. your paradigm of the world gets shaped by that a lot. And, I would agree with that. And, but if you're able to, you know, kind of see things as, yeah, no, this, this concept in my mind can be expressed not just with different grammars, but different meanings and, and completely like in different value systems or cultures of, of how to interpret that. It, it changes. It, I think it, it allows you to be a lot more flexible and to come up with different approaches to things. And that's kind of the key value, which is I, I wonder if it's going to help problem solving more um, in the bigger picture, kind of adding value through, you know, being able to come at something with different angles and approaches, but you know, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like, uh, you know, I learned so much math. God, I learned mm-hmm. so much math when I was in college, like unbelievable amounts of math, just like uh-huh. dreaming of it, you know, uh-huh. kinds yeah. of stuff. And uh, I've forgotten all the, like I spent so many hours drilling all this crazy stuff in, in calculus say, mm-hmm. uh, and uh and like i retain very little of that but one of the things i got out of all of that stuff is this highly abstracted method of problem solving which i use every single day uh which it has become completely decoupled from the math which was the mechanism that i learned it and the math itself like it's you know it's hasn't the the you know, I lost a lot of it. It's like that native language thing, you know, I lost so much of that math. Like there were things that I could do so I could solve so quickly on, on, on paper. Like, you know, when I was 19 years old, it was crazy. I was super good at that stuff. And now I can do very little of that stuff quickly off the cuff. I can sit down and re-derive all that stuff. Like I can eventually get there with all those things, but the problem solving skills that I learned from trying, from banging through all those problems, those I believe, to the best of my understanding, those stuck with me and have been really useful my whole life. And I think the language thing, like you can draw a parallel with that, right? There are things that you get, which the language gets you access to that are super valuable, that the second language gets you access to that are super valuable and that you will retain uh, even if you don't, because what will happen is it'll inform the way you think about your life in your native language, right? And you will keep using those things because they'll be part of the way that you understand the world. Yeah. I was talking to my wife. We're at this restaurant. I'm like, we we're talking about the value of math as like, mm-hmm. I feel like in school they teach math, but they don't teach the application of it, the value of it across, you know, many, many fields. Cause you can connect so many f- value of uh, fields of value to math, but kids don't really learn those, you know, uh, kind of the application as much. But I was telling her like, uh, math is like kind of almost, it's, I won't say it's a, I would compare it, it's like a language in a sense where you could express certain things with pure numbers or understand, interpret things with, with numbers and see things through that angle. And it opens up a whole new world to mm-hmm. um, and a new way of looking at things. And I'm like, oh, it's like 
I was telling my wife, like language and math, like these are a couple of things I really want my kids to, to not just know in terms of skill, but for these things to open up new worlds for them. Like, you know, that's, I mean, music maybe too, but there, there's these certain, I think, core fundamental foundational things that can open up a lot, you know, and um, yeah, math definitely, yeah, has a lot of that. Math is a kind of distilled abstract reasoning that um, it is useful to understand that it exists, that it's a thing and what it's good for and have a sense of its capabilities. I think that is really foundational to being, um, to being able to make like really good decisions in the world. Like new that's to me, that's numeracy. Numeracy is not addition. Numeracy is understanding that you can, that symbols on papers and, and the rules for how you use them to map a problem onto a sheet of paper and then manipulate it to, to discover things that you know are there that you never suspected were there right mm -hmm. like yeah. getting that like that's a magic thing that you can do when you learn math and knowing that in your heart like knowing that viscerally yeah. that's the magic thing that you get out of it right knowing that that's because if you know that mechanism is there you can always go get it like you can relearn like any of the calculus that I learned, like I could fire up Wikipedia or whatnot. I could get that skill, the particular one I need to solve the problem at hand really quickly because I know it's there. I know what it looks like and all of that kind of stuff. So like, I don't feel bad at all about not having any of that stuff. It's wasted space in my brain now that I have Google. But the key thing is to know what the shape of the solution looks like. Like when you're trying to solve a problem, what role does math play? What, you know, I would argue, more fundamental than mathematics today is computer programming, right? Not knowing a particular language, but knowing what computer programming is, what it does, what it enables, how you use it. Like having that as a distilled component of your toolbox for solving the problems that you're gonna encounter in life is super valuable. In fact, yeah. I think if you have programming, getting, I think getting to math from programming is easier than the other way around. Like I think math is easier once you get programming. Nobody teaches it that way. Yeah, Probably yeah, nobody ever will because we still think of mathematics as like more fundamental than programming. But I think I think programming is actually more fundamental than mathematics is. Um, mm -hmm. And that learning math is very likely easier once you learn. And, and I'm not saying, you know, become a C++ wizard and write an yeah. operating system. Just like, but doing enough programming that you understand programming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like interesting, um, like with programming yeah it's like some of these skills so i like because i i i grew up in silicon valley and near cupertino we i i hated programming like i just mm -hmm. like you know would just despise it couldn't get into it at all but after college i was doing um this uh nonprofit organization i was having to create my own not just websites but these these um i was creating these interactive forums and stuff and like logins mm -hmm. and I would have to piece together all of that. And I would just like, I was just like doing like web development for like a few years. It's <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like I would go to Starbucks for like 12 hours straight, you know, it's like, and it, stuff I couldn't understand. I would have to like get other people to help me code yeah. different sections, put in my code and, and do all this stuff. But what I learned was i learned, oh, it's like, I learned all, the, it wasn't advanced programming, but I learned 
everything is connected and it, it plays a role in doing something. And that type of mentality of, oh, this does this and this and this, it, it gave me enough, I guess, foundation when the app store came out. I'm like, oh, the app is like the same thing, you know, it's just, you just got to tell it what yeah. to do. And, um, and so, yeah, understanding kind of coding on a foundational type of level has, has really opened up a, a, a ton of different um, opportunities or things. And even though I don't really code much at all, like I understand like the, what, it, like this, I understand it on a very like, like intimate level. Like I, like sometimes I could, I could read the code and, and just, I won't, I can't per se, I'm not going to spend a ton, ton of time writing it, but I, I'm, it's, I understand what it, what it's doing in a sense of flow mm -hmm. and why. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very like, yeah, for example, with our app company, I've always been kind of hands-on, like, I want to know what, what, what are we doing exactly? Like, what is the, the, the flow, the steps, what are we, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's always been like, uh, yeah, super valuable. So when this whole language learning thing comes up, like I'm wanting also to teach my kids how to do business and how to create stuff. So it's cool because I'm like, oh yeah, it's like they're like building an app is not a foreign concept. It's like, it's very just straightforward on what we want to do. And we just need to code, get that coded in a certain way and build something of value and function. And so it's kind of cool. My kids are, um, my seven-year-old the other day, he was like sketching out these like this, uh, this uh, part of the app he wants to add into it, you know, mock-ups and mm -hmm. stuff. And he's really into mm -hmm. it. Um, but to see them at this age kind of um, seeing that process and doing it together, I mean, it's kind of fun. Whether or not the app ever works out or not, it's just, it's just fun, I think, doing mm -hmm. it with them at this age. Yeah. yeah. Sounds cool. Yeah. Um, sounds good. Thanks, James, for chatting. Um, yeah, this is a... Um, this stuff I'm, I'm actually mulling over a lot nowadays, mm -hmm. <laughs> the language stuff. It's like taking up yeah. a lot of my time. So yeah, I haven't been able it's to do many videos. It's a complicated topic. I worked yeah. on it for like a year before I started working on it. Like there's a lot to mm -hmm. just learn about how, because I wanted to do it the right way, you know? Yeah. So I thought for a long time about how, about how to do it. And like now I do it really differently. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and now, and now there's all this technology, but like, mm -hmm. it's a big, it's a big thing. And, uh, you know, picking, figuring out exactly, no, I mean, having your kids and having the goal of like, I want to build an app that's good for my kids to learn this language. That's probably a nice way to restrict yeah. the problem. You've got your beta testers go at that. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, it'll be fun for you. I'm sure. All right, James. Uh, thanks. We'll chat later again. Um, yeah. Have a great night. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.